Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. And here is your forecast for Friday, October 20th, and Saturday, October 21st. Friday, in the clouds with a chance of rain showers early. Rain showers likely in the afternoon, with a high in the upper 30s. Winds southwest. Shifting south at 30 to 45 miles per hour, increasing to 40 to 55 miles per hour with gusts up to 70 miles per hour. Wind chill rising to 20 to 30 above. Friday night in the clouds with rain, possibly falling heavy at times after midnight, with a low rising to around 40 degrees. Winds south shifting southeast at 40 to 55 miles per hour with gusts up to 65 miles per hour, decreasing to 20 to 35 miles per hour, and the wind chill will be rising to 25 to 35 above. And then Saturday, in the clouds with rain falling heavy at times, lower 40s for a high, winds southeast shifting northwest at 15 to 30 miles per hour, increasing to 35 to 50 miles per hour with a wind chill rising to 30 to 40 above. Have a great time out there this weekend. from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Stomp episode 126. I'm flying blind here. I can't see you guys. This is a little disconcerting. <laughs> Top secret location. We can't reveal our location or our 
uh, image at the moment. Stomp's dumb camera can't work. Um, so yeah, last I, I left you guys, doing. the cats were tussling. So you said that they, they're, if they misbehave, you're kicking them out? Yes. Yeah, there'll be history. They can get overwhelming sometimes, a little well, overbearing. The black cat appears to be trying to blend in and escape. Yeah, that's between okay. the uh, sliding glass door and the uh, bug netting. Right. That's kind of impressive, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so we got cats going on. Rusty's going to be like stuffing his face in the background. So we apologize ahead of time. It's, it could be chaotic tonight. But I've got sushi, which makes me happy. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, Rusty's fresh off the rocks at uh, Rumney. All right. Well, so, we'll introduce we'll introduce Rusty in a moment. But yeah, I can't see Stomp on the camera, so it might be a, our timing may be off a little bit tonight, folks. So we apologize. So what have you been up to, Stomp? Nothing much. Yeah, just working, doing my thing. Um, had an interesting time today. I um, I was at uh, my clinic in Meredith, and one of the elders, one of the patients, came by. And looked at me and apparently mistook my outfit for uh, being a clergyman. And as I was walking past her, she asked me, are you hearing confessions today? (laughs) And I I didn't know how to respond. Like, how do you respond to a question like that? Well, you immediately say, yes, let's get started. (laughs) Uh, I actually said something to the effect of, uh, no, I'm not, but um, somebody will be. Uh, something to that effect. I don't know. It took me off guard. <laughs> I went into the city yesterday, Stomp, for the first time in a long time. Uh, what city? Boston? Boston, Cambridge, yeah. I had to okay. walk over to a convention over at Heinz, Heinz Convention Center. But I had a... Um, I, I, and I used to run on this bridge every day, every day for years and years and years. But I had noticed that the the MIT crew had updated the Mass Ave bridge with their. Uh, well, I guess first of all, stuff. Have you ever heard of the unit of measurement called a schmoot? <laughs> no, I haven't. Have you? I've never heard of a schmoot. So it's a unit of measurement. Um, yeah, it's a schmoot. So. Um, it's sort of, it's almost like two, it's five feet, seven inches is one schmoot. And it's a non-standard humor, humorous unit uh, of length that was created as part of an MIT fraternity pledge for the La Lambda Chi fraternity in 1958. So what they did is they took a pledge. His name was Oliver Schmoot. And they went across the Mass Ave Bridge. I call it the Mass Ave Bridge. Apparently it's called the Harbor Bridge. But they laid this kid basically like, one length, and they would mark a schmoot, and they would make him lay again on the next schmoot. And um, over, so in order for you to cross the Mass Ave Bridge from Cambridge into Boston, it's 364 schmoots. So I noticed the freshly mm. painted measurements on the bridge. So I kind of miss the quirkiness of the city sometimes. Are there are there schmoot lines? There's like do you schmoot, step over. Well, what they do is they 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 do like um, fifty schmoots and then a hundred schmoots, 
And there's like some like odd numbered schmoots that might mean something traditionally because in fraternities, you know, pledging and stuff like that, there's like, you know, maybe he did something stupid and that's why 112 schmoots is marked off. But mostly it's like just like 50, 100, 150. And at the very end, at the corner, um, when you get right before MIT and Cambridge, it's 364 schmoots. So who came up with this? This was a fraternity. Uh, so when you... Oh, I, I would assume. Yeah, so it, it was just a, like a dumb thing where they said, like, you know, we're going to use Oliver Schmoot as our uh, unit of measurement. So, it, But it's gone on for like 50 years now. So this happened in like the 1950s. And ever since then, mm-hmm. every year, the Lambda Chi fraternity will refresh the painting to mark off the, the distance on the bridge. So... If you're, now, if, to be fair, yeah. is is that is a schmoot any more random than than a foot? No, because you know a foot is just a measurement of some king's foot, right? Correct. I think I, I don't even know. <clears throat> so um, the and then like a stone, exactly like a, a measurement of weight in in the UK that I think is like eighteen pounds. I could be wrong. Something around yeah, there. something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, honestly, that why not? We should just we should just go full schmoot. That's what I say. <laughs> I agree. I agree. For now on, like you know, what I'm going to start doing is instead simple. of elevation, I'm going to convert my uh, feet into schmoots when I'm climbing mountains, and just say that I climbed 1,200 schmoots today. 4,000 schmooters. Yeah, yeah. Well, 4,000 schmoots would be, you know, you're going to make me do math now, so forget it. But anyway, so that's a fun fact for listeners. If you're ever um, in, in on the Mass Ave Bridge from Cambridge to Boston, check out the schmoot markings. That's really interesting. Yeah. So. so why were you in Boston? Let's get back to that. I was at a convention for work. It was like a, uh, an association for um, global mobility and immigration. So very, very interesting. fascinating topic. <laughs> yep. How to move Excellent. employees. Well, I'm glad you made yeah. it out in one piece. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was kind of weird being in the city, being <laughs> surrounded by all these crowds. I'm used to just being in my basement or being in the woods. So, um, but different kind of wild altogether. It is, it is. Stomp, one other story I have to tell you actually before we get into our, our script is this morning I uh, decided to go running and I was about 6.15 or so. And I don't think the sun really comes up until about 6.30, 6, 6.45. So I timed it a little bit where I got, I got out a little early and I, I didn't, I'm, I should be wearing like, flashy lights and all that stuff but i didn't do that because I'm, I'm just on the sidewalk for a mile and then i'm in the woods the whole time so i was just like forget it. i'm not gonna wear any of that so i got in the woods and it was pitch black because it's still cloudy it was cloudy this morning so i actually ran in the woods with no headlamp this morning for the first time in like a long time i do it every once in a while but it made me realize just how insanely difficult it is to navigate um along a trail system because i'm on the, this trail that i run i probably run it 200 times a year, maybe 250 times a year. So I know this yeah. trail system like the back of my hand. Oh, there you guys are. And I was still uh, <laughs> I was still having trouble navigating. So it it really is like so critical to have a headlamp and lights when you're when you're out there in the dark. It's just impossible to navigate. PS, we're being interrupted by the Blackhawk. You hear that? I do hear that. Yeah, they train on Welch Dickey like twice a week. In the dark. In the <laughs> of dark. course they do. <laughs> with, with no headlamp. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah, but they've got the night vision goggles, so that changes everything. True. True. Yeah. Wild. 
Oh boy. Anyway. Anyway, but Sorry. anyway, I, I tried to basically up my skills in navigating in the dark, but it just didn't really seem to work that well. So this is my PSA. Clearly, you just need some uh, some some night vision goggles. I yeah, uh, I could try that. <laughs> I could try that. Um, but anyway, Stomp, you wanted to start the show off. We've got an article uh, around the hikers that recounted finding deceased actor Julian Sand on Mount Baldy out in California. I can't read this article. Right. I'm, I'm blocked out on the paywall, so I haven't read the article. I've tried a couple of times, so you'll have to give the breakdown. Well, yeah, I'll just go into it briefly. So um, this was dated back, I think, August 10th, this story. And as we know, Julian Sands, the actor, uh, fell while climbing at Mount Baldy, which is a peak, what, west of, no, wait, east of Los Angeles, if I remember correctly. But it's very dangerous. Um, Many fatalities every year. This spring, they had done um, a round of searching for the body, no luck, and uh, they had sent out helicopters as well. And this one group of hikers actually went out the day after the uh, helicopter search, sort of knowing they had a, a vibe that they were going to discover something because they went into this canyon, um, which was fairly remote. And as sure enough, as they uh, progressed into this remote canyon, they started to see uh, pieces of clothing uh, one at a time. They started by finding a shoe, a pack, you know, a coat, that type of thing. And then they found uh, a skeletal remain and ID'd the body. Uh, but it's just a, a really interesting story, and it sort of puts a, a, a cap on the, the story of Mr. Sands here after several months of searching and not knowing where his remains were. Wow, that must be, like, so disturbing. Yeah. Have you guys ever, like, in your travels, like, done that, like, discovered, like, oh, there's a footprint, and then I'm going to find somebody that needs, a like, clothing or food or anything like that? No, not me personally. I mean, only during a search. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, but so you have like cause not 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 a, not by accident. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, thankfully, yeah, that must be freaky. You find a little little piece of clothing, and then you find a little bit more, and then you find a body. It's creepy. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that does happen on a legit search, but. In general, no. Yeah. 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 All right, Stomp. Well, moving on, we got dog rescue news here. So apparently, I don't know if you guys know this, but there is, um, we may have to reach out to this crew and get them on here, but I guess somebody started in, in the way that they're describing this is it's an informal group of volunteers available to assist with dog rescue incidents in the mountains of New Hampshire. They're called the New Hampshire Paw Rescue And they just put up a social media page here, and they said that if you'd like to support the group, you can make a tax-deductible donation to the AMC and designate it for the Canine SAR Fund. If you put that on the note on the check and include a card note in the envelope, the money will be earmarked to support the Canine Search and Rescue by the AMC and the Hampshire Paw Rescue. So um, Mm. this crew was called out. Yeah, yeah. I think it's needed. I mean, how many times have we talked about dogs getting rescued? Right, and they seem to be triggered by Facebook posts more than anything, you know. But great yeah. response when that happens. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Well, because fish and game won't go out for a dog. Yeah. Liability. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so I became aware of them because there was a rescue that happened on, um, I think it was Saturday. Yeah, it was Saturday around 4.15, 4.30. Uh, somebody had posted on Facebook, and they were like, we got a dog that's in trouble. It's an 80-pound dog named Oakley. They were on Wildcat Ridge, and they were close to the summit, and they got a couple of people from this New Hampshire Paw Rescue crew um, got up there pretty quickly, and they were able to make it up to Wildcat A. And um, I guess what happened is the uh, it's the same thing, obviously, with these dogs. Most of the time is that the paws get injured, and there was abrasions and rough rocks, and the dogs just stopped moving. So I guess they were able to get him to a point between Wildcat C and D, but then after that, they just kind of froze. So there's two paw rescue team members hiked up the ski area, and they were able to reach the owner. Um, and then they had a pack a paw. So they were able to get the dog moving. And then there was another group that came rolling up and they, they connected with them around 3,400 feet. So they got down a good distance and then they were able to get down to the ski area at around 11 o'clock. So that's not too bad. So 415 and then they're down by 11 at night. Mm. Interesting. Does the, um, Article mentioned anything about um, liability or insurance or assumption of risk or anything like that. I'm curious. I mean, you're carrying a dog, you're hiking. I mean, there's a risk of injury. I don't know what happens. Yeah, I don't know. I think that they're just a volunteer group that um, is taking on that risk on their own, I suppose. I mean, the, these dogs, too, the thing you have to remember with these dogs is when they're in distress and you're a stranger even a docile dog could nip at you. So they actually have a, um, a muzzle, but I'm assuming that this crew probably brings the whole deal, the pack of paws, the muzzle, um, and some, some, some material to help with the paws. But in this case here, they said that they, the dog wouldn't even let them go near his paws. Mm. So, right. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, good. so good Samaritan wouldn't work for this scenario because it's a pet. So if you get bit by a dog and you're volunteering, I mean, that's just all kinds of interesting questions. Well, I mean, what trouble would you get into aside from injury? And well, then you're, you're responsible for your own medical bills or whatever, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, <clears throat> true. You're just, you're just the same as if you're walking along the trail and a dog decides to bite you or something, right? True, yeah. yeah go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, go... <laughs> Yeah, where it could get interesting is if you're just out there hiking and then as part of your, you, you stumble upon an owner and their dog and you start trying to help and then the dog bites you. You know, I could see a scenario like that where someone might say like, hey, and then it becomes just like any other dog bite situation. So, yeah, civil tort. Yeah, but it is interesting. That's so interesting. this New Hampshire Paw Rescue, I'll link in the show notes. So they've got Oakley. They got a picture of Oakley. It's a good sized dog, 80 pound dog. And then they are actually involved in another rescue of a dog named Dexter at the end of September. And this dog was at Lakes of the Clouds. So they, they took the dog up Edmonds Path and um, paw issues. And they were able to, um, I guess, get this dog down. Looks like they came down. Um, they were able to treat this dog's paws, which was good. And then they were able to take it down Amanusik, which is no easy feat either. So, And Dexter looks like a pretty good-sized dog, too. So I love how they always put a picture of the dog. Like when they get it down and they get it in the back seat, the dog just looks so happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Dogs are great. Yeah. But that's good, Stomp. I think that, uh, unfortunately, yeah, there's progress. been a lot of dog rescues, but, I mean, it's inspiring someone to start this up, so that's great. 
Yeah, that is great. Yep. yep. So stand by. Maybe we'll uh, we'll get them we'll get them on at some point. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Excellent. All right, Stomp. I'm going to do the show show intro here. So welcome to episode 126 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This episode marks our first big deep dive into New Hampshire's rock climbing scene with one of the area's most respected climbers, Rusty Talbert. Rusty's like climbing away from the microphone right now. (laughs) (laughs) He can't stop climbing. (laughs) Rusty is a prolific outdoor recreationalist, cyclist, guide, search and rescue and adaptive sports volunteer, and owner of the popular North Country Climbing Gym in Littleton, New Hampshire. Rusty has been kind enough to join us fresh off the Rumney Rocks for a root and branch look at the exhilarating and challenging world of rock climbing. Plus, we've got smelly backpacks, we've got search and rescue insurance, a new Generation Z fad called Silent Walking. Should we tell them, Stomp? Uh, no, let's let them wait. Okay, all right. Gen, Gen Z, we're not going to tell you. Uh, Mike and Nobby are miserable failures on <laughs> so, Mount Adams. So we're just going to be silent Yes, and about recent search silent and walking. rescue news, in, right. <laughs> in, including a carryout from Huntington Ravine. So I'm Mike. And I'm stumped. Let's get started. Oh, this is getting off the rails already here. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, sure is. (laughs) This is Ben Pease from Hiking Buddies. We are a 501c3 nonprofit committed to reducing avoidable tragedies through education, impactful projects, and fostering a community of support. You can find out more at hikingbuddies.org. We wanted to say thank you to those who have supported our mission, and most importantly, say thanks to those who speak up, who ask questions, and who are willing to provide guidance and assistance on the trails when needed. You embody what it means to be a hiking buddy. And now, for all my newer hikers out there, here's this episode's Hiking Buddies Quick Tip. Wrapping some duct tape around your trekking poles is an excellent idea in case you have an emergency situation. Duct tape can also be used to secure splints, repair tents, rips, tears, and many other uses out on trail. It's an excellent addition to any pack, anytime. All right, Stomp, so uh, do you swap out your gear for the winter? You got everything in your giant 110 liter backpack? (laughs) <laughs> 115 to be exact whatever yeah last weekend i did i uh you, you just hit that time where you feel like it's the time to swap your your cash out so yeah the all the winter stuff's in the truck snow uh snowshoes not yet that that comes obviously later but the, the warm clothing and uh you know hand warmers and all that good stuff it's ready to go how about you yeah, matter of fact, I, I had to, all my gear. I went hiking on Saturday. I went up to Mount Adams, and I had all my gear in my, like, 25-liter pack, and it was, like, shoved in there, like, my puffy jacket, and it was it fit, but I was kind of like, if I got to get stuff out, like, this is going to be a pain in the neck. So I just took it all out, and I put it in my Hyperlite, my big backpack, and I was so much happier with it because it doesn't weigh that much more, and it's just so much easier to get stuff. So I guess I'm, yeah. I'm transitioning. How are you, Rusty? Do you do what? How do you work? I uh, I do organize. I swap out my stuff, and I need to have it easy to grab for 
for for a rescue or something like that that happens. Yeah. Same as anyone else, right? You get you want to have it easy to grab. Yeah, yeah. In case we get called. Um, I haven't done the full swap out though. I sort of edge into it little by little. <laughs> right. Like cuz it's, you know, it's not like I'm going to need the the monster puffy. Sure, sure. You know, it's like I've got my my normal sized winter down jacket, not the really big one. And I should probably start digging out things like crampons and stuff, but I've, yes. I've just gotten the micro spikes out. Yeah. Of course, today I was climbing in a t-shirt. So, I mean, I we're, we're at that, that, <laughs> that shoulder season where it swings one way and then it swings the other way, right? Yeah. Once the sun goes down, it's freezing. Yeah. But yeah. the days are warm. Yeah, I don't know how those people. I see them all the time now. Like every the the like winter hikers or the really cold hikers, cold weather hikers, where they're just carrying those like twenty, thirty liter backpacks. Like I just can't. I, I get so frustrated digging through and having to pull a bunch of stuff out. Like I I prefer a much bigger backpack so I can I can find things. So I don't know how they do it. It's all a matter of preference. True, true. It is. Yeah. Um, and also planning, right? Because you sort of figure, okay, what are the things that I'm not going to need to get at and put those in the bottom? Yeah, right, right. And then if you're going to need the mittens, you're probably going to need the puffy jacket too. So you put the jacket on top of the mittens and yeah, all, yeah. all that stuff. Yep. I'm, I like the smaller packs. So I'm a, I'm a 30 liter pack most of the time mm-hmm. kind of person. And then I've got my 55 liter, which... For winter. For the winter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah hard winter yeah that's pretty much mine like i get the 25 liter that i i i can use pretty much unless it's like really i gotta bring like my whole gear and then i have a 55 liter which i use in the winter so Hmm. but speaking of pack stomp there was a social media post that i picked up and i was like i actually it was kind of funny because i i hadn't i was like this is literally something i've never thought about and i actually got offended by it because i was like i don't even think that like people should be thinking about this but the question was somebody had they were like what does everybody do to wash their backpack to keep it when it gets too gross and clean and i was like i've honestly ne- <laughs> i would throw mine out before i ever washed it um so i was i was just i was like i don't even know what this is what what you're asking uh but i was curious like did either one of you ever wash your like stomp you said you have some you've taken through a car wash or something before like what what do you guys do <laughs> well that was accidental but stomp it would do that yeah. <laughs> you, you would do that. Yeah. that that that's on brand yeah it worked really well <laughs> accidental of course but it was shiny in the bed bed of the truck <laughs> yes nice I'm like damn it i'm looking in the mirror and my pack's back there but uh yeah i'm with you i don't wash my pack purposely if i would I mean, fear that's, that that's would a good way apart. to test the waterproofing every now and then right like okay <laughs> right. does this seal up pretty well all right is the is the down jacket inside of it like matted down and useless or or is it actually still puffy <laughs> that's so funny so yeah, that's that's one way you can do it. Uh, if the listeners are curious, but I'm fearful that my pack would just fall apart if I washed it for real. It's so old. I like the vintage stuff, and it's all held together by, you know, duct tape and super glue. Um, do you wash your packs, Rusty? No, <laughs> no. I'm I'm with Mike on this one. This is uh, pack washing is is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So the answer for so also also what what are you doing to your pack that makes it like I understand with like shoes right like shoes get muddy get gross and and your feet and all the rest of that and eventually at some point you've got to figure out how to yeah you know clean them up a bit and and get get the worst of the stink out of it for a little while but like 
a pack. I'm I'm not I'm not even understanding this. I th- well, it ties into this, one of the sponsors here. I mean, I think it's your body against your pack. Is you're sweating, so it's absorbing your your sweat, perspiration, and over time, I I would think that that would start to get a little odorous. Oh, so now, actually, now that we're talking about this, I have washed my like running vest. Yeah, my trail running vest because I I put that in a different category than a pack, even though yeah. it has whatever it has thirteen liters of capacity of to squeeze stuff into it, yeah. and that did get really grim, and <laughs> and and I knew it was time to wash when the zippers were like they were so coated in um, salt. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That they were they weren't zipping anymore. <laughs> Like it was really hard to 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 open or close, yeah. And that just put it through the. It's a you know it's one of those nice Solomon ones. It, oh yeah, it's great. Just toss it in the wash on gentle. There you go. Took it out, air dried, and that's, that's practical though because it's going to dry fast. It's going to dry fast, and it's also like right there on you. Yeah, and it's going to get stinky. Yeah. So yeah, so there's that. I don't I don't really think that my my backpack, like yeah. actual backpack, quite has that same level of intimacy with me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. The running vest. Honestly, like I've never washed my running vest either. I've got to check. I got to look at the salt levels on my zippers. I think so. Um, so well, my wife was just yelling at me today because she said my uh, trail runners stink so bad, and I was like, they kind of. I only have like 150 miles on them. You know what I do with those though is I pre- I have a pressure washer and I pressure wash my my sneakers and that actually cleans them up pretty nicely. Nice. That's a that's a great idea. Yeah. The the thing I've lately been doing, not for washing, but just to destinkify, has been to just put a little baking soda in it. Oh yeah, I could try in that. the shoes. Leave leave some baking soda in the shoes overnight. You know, try to shake it out in the morning or whatever. I take my insoles out, and put the put a bit of baking soda in, and it it does a remarkable job. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to try that. Which makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. that's why we have it in our fridge and everything yeah mrs michael appreciate your advice because she was not happy today so <laughs> all right try the baking powder yeah. baking soda not powder okay all right so Cat behind you oh, oh watch out he's going for the oh, sushi oh, oh oh stay away Sorry, from my Zylo. sushi you can just knock him off just give him a little firm push yeah good luck <laughs> um yeah this is where we say see you xylo <laughs> Xylo and sushi do not mix. Yeah. Um, so, Stomp, some good news. We talked about how Black Mountain was closing because they couldn't, um, I guess, sta- they couldn't get staffing or money or something. Apparently, uh, they are uh, they're swerving. They're going to open this year. So, um, I guess they're partnering with something called Indie Pass. So um, they will remain opening open for the coming season and they received overwhelming support from the community and um, they're going to get this going for another season. So, right. And they're looking for a buyer for next year. So that's nice. Yeah. Try to try to provide a transition. Yeah. Which would be cool. Originally, uh, just as a reminder, they were citing um, energy costs, uh, just the economy in general. As the re- in staffing shortages too, uh, so which makes me wonder. I wonder how Tenny will do this year, you know, because Tenny just got up and running last season over here in Plymouth. Um, but it's just location, location, location. I guess <clears throat> most of the mountains have had real trouble staffing. So most, uh, I think a lot of them have at least. 
Um, so they've been paring back some of their programming. I know Canon pared back a bit their kids' programming last year. Yeah, it's it's tough because you've got the you know you have some nomadic like seasonal workers that will you know you see them on like TikTok and stuff like that. Like there is a group of people that will go around to like these seasonal jobs, but it does seem like they they cluster much more in like the the west. Uh, the western region of the mountains. So I don't know if if you're looking for like a nomadic type job for a couple of months, like this might be a good area to check out. Go check out Black Mountain. Um, but I'm excited. I think that everyone should, like if you're going to go skiing, like go check out Black Mountain. Make sure that if, if it snows, let's give them a good season because they are fantastic. I mean, this is where my kids learn to ski. If you're, if you're young kids, it, for me, it was always the best value, the best time, the easiest place to get them to learn. So I highly recommend it. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Stomp. So um, Ty Gagne did a uh, Hiking Buddies virtual chat. I wasn't able to get to this one. Um, I did put out a mm. plug on our Facebook, but uh, did you sit in on this one? I did. Yeah, it was nice. Um, Ty fielded questions from listeners. I think there were about close to maybe 100 people on that call. It was a Zoom call. And um, uh, a lot of Great questions, but one of the uh, participants asked a question to Ty and said, what about uh, search and rescue insurance? Um, do I need to get that, especially in New Hampshire? And then there was a, a lengthy discussion about the uh, the workings of hike safe cards, how they work, when they don't work, when you're reckless or negligent uh, or recklessly negligent. And uh, it was interesting. So I did a little digging, and I suppose the quickest way to do this is just to provide the show notes. But a couple options. Anybody with a Garmin, apparently, if you trigger um, a Garmin for a rescue, there are plans that will go into effect for insurance if you are billed for whatever reason, which is really interesting. And they range from, I think, $300 upward, uh, depending on the coverage. And then there's the American Alpine Club as well. Um, which is a fantastic organization. Um, they offer coverage as well for search and rescue. Uh, again, depending on the coverage and the, the monthly payment that you're willing to uh, fork out. So, interesting. I don't know how handy it would be here. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be really worried about that. I mean, New Hampshire, the fish and game does not try go out of their way to get people to pay for their searches or the rescues or any of that kind of stuff. It's, yeah. it's, you've got you've to work really hard and make some active bad decisioning making sure. to, in order to get, get charged anything. So it seems in the U.S., generally speaking, I don't think that kind of insurance is necessary. Overseas, that's a totally different matter. And certainly if traveling through the Alps or the Himalaya or any of those places, then... Then if a helicopter comes and gets you, there's a there's a there's it. a big bill if you don't have insurance. So if so. you're gonna if you're like gonna do trekking to base camp or something, you know, if you, you're gonna do that like two week trip or whatever to the base, would you recommend getting that type of insurance for a trip like that, or if you're gonna be in the Alps? I mean, it's not a bad idea. Um, Just to cover and, yourself. And there's a bunch of different... Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a bunch of different options out there for that. Uh, I think there's one called Global Rescue, which which partners with a number of outdoor companies. Um, it's worth looking at, at least. In the same way that folks would have um, international health insurance or something like yeah. that if you, if you travel overseas. It's... 
it seems like a pretty good idea. Yeah, right? yeah. We always get that. Like, even if we're traveling to the Caribbean, I get like supplemental medical just in case, like the kids break a leg or something happens. So um, I'm assuming that it, there's probably similar plans for for search and rescue. So, mm. well, it's interesting. A lot of the plans mention just in case there's also civil unrest or war or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we'll cover your expenses getting out of a foreign country too. Yeah. Excellent. Um, all right, Stomp. So uh, Appalachian Trail through hiking. So I wanted to do just a quick wrap up, close the close the lid on a couple of stories here. I think the, the through hiking season is pretty much winding down. So everybody okay. that started in March and April is they've either made it or they've quit. Their shoes are hanging on a tree in Georgia somewhere. But um, a couple of stories that we had followed. So just as a reminder, this year there was a new southbound supported fastest known time. And this was done by Christian Morgan. And he was able to beat out um, Carl Meltzer. So Christian was able to uh, complete the southbound route in 45 days, 4 hours, and 27 minutes. So he beat Carl by about... I think about um, 18 hours, and he completed the trail in September 16th, 2023. So that's pretty big. That is, yeah, that's a massive chunk of change. So uh, that's impressive, especially I feel like this year was not a great year. It's very wet, but maybe it wasn't as bad down south. Yeah. Wow. Interesting story. Overuse injury due to 16 hours of intermittent ankle-deep mud in Vermont. Huh. That's the, he had to deal with that. Yeah, that's what it was saying here, a little bit lower in the report section. But that's amazing. Yep. So that's impressive. And then we had covered a family called Thirty Two Feet Up, which was a family was of like uh, just about to ask. Yeah, yeah. So last I heard, I did a little bit of digging on this one. So <laughs> there's two things that went down. So one is they they went to Katahdin, then they was going through the hundred mile wilderness. I don't, I didn't see any updates on where they are. They are. So I'm assuming they're either they either made it back down through Maine uh, because they they got off at Rattle River. And then they drove up to Katahdin, hiked Katahdin, um, and then they're making their way down. But I did see the mother posted in one of the through hiking social media groups, and she like, she like called out a couple of people that I guess were like first of all they they were able to get their dog to summit Katahdin, but then like some people were sending screenshots about how she had explained early on in the hike that the dog was not a service dog it was like a protection dog but then she was able to do whatever she needed to do to get the certification or not certification but she was able to tell the rangers that the dog was a service dog so there was a bunch of people that were mad because they said like at the beginning of the hike you said the dog was just there for for protection and was not a service dog and then it became a service dog when you wanted to climb katahdin so the mother explained that like during the course of the hike the dog transitioned from a 
protection dog to a service dog. So that was her justification. So there's a bunch of people that were mad about this. Uh, I don't know. So the mother seemed very mad about this. And then there was a bunch of people that are like claiming that they skipped a bunch of areas because they still need to do the Smokies. And, you know, the the through hiker purists are like, well, you didn't hike every mile of every section and all this stuff. So she... Section hiker then. Well, they're just bouncing around. Like you can do a a through hike and you don't need to do everything like in a row. You can go, you can skip and you can go back and forth. So she may finish. Like they have about 80, 90 miles in, in the um, the Smokies that they have to do. But she, yeah. she was, but other people were claiming like, well, you skip some other sections or whatever. So there continues to be drama with the 32 feet up. I'm rooting for them. I actually was reading some of the kids' posts and they were kind of funny. So, I mean, it is what it is. They're having fun. Have you heard about this, Rusty? I have not been following just 32 15 up kids. So, Rusty, just... The youngest was yeah, three, like, Wait, wait, wait. Uh, one, one, one mom? One mom, 15 kids. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. So, just picture, Eight. Rusty, you've done 20 miles on a day. You're doing the Appalachian Trail. You've done 20 miles. You get to the oh, what's shelter. The, what's the age range of kids? You set like, up... So, 15, yeah. ranging from age... Oh, like, like five. Up to... Yeah. Five up to they're like five up to twenty five. I think the oldest is twenty. Okay. They're like twenty five years old. Yeah, some of them. Are. Okay, very interesting. And the backstory is there's like a recent divorce too. I mean, you know, people make different life choices. Yeah, <laughs> some do it with fifteen kids, some don't. <laughs> but can you just imagine you've got your you get your tent set up and that crew rolls into the into the campground and you're like, oh my god, there goes the peace and quiet. So. Oh boy! Yeah, it's excellent. It's a great story, though. No, I think it's epic. I do hope she finishes, and um, the kids will one day appreciate it. If they don't now, I would assume. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to reach out to her. Building. I'm going to reach out to her, and I'm going to I need to interrogate her about the service dog situation. So <laughs> maybe we'll get her on. And then last, get her on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Last but not least, the New Hampshire hiker. So this is um, right. Taylor, the New Hampshire hiker. So I've been following her. This is like a third time doing the trail. She got off trail in September because it was like crazy raining. And then she started back up to do Maine. And I think she, last I checked, she got like 80 miles left, but she got off trail she was hiking with her friend Cody and everything was good, but I think she still got like 80 miles to do and it was like left open whether she was going to get them done this year or not. So, mm. Okay. Um, let me know when she's back so we can have her on so she, she can tell her story. Yeah, we'll see if she wants to come on. So, I'm, I'm assuming she lives in New Hampshire? Yes, yes. She somewhere? lives like down in the Lakes region somewhere and she's got like a... Um, gift shop that she sells and like she she sells like shirts that say New Hampshire hiker so it's N A H A M P S H A so although I think she's originally a Massachusetts person so sorry <laughs> you won't hold it against her yes <laughs> yeah always the big joke yeah All well right. you know maybe that's why it's New Hampshire it's not not actually you know that's true yeah yeah, yeah that's true who knows Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stump.
Um, all right, Stomp. Now uh, we're going to go into this is kind of pop culture talk, but not really. So there's a new fad, Stomp. Do you want to explain this? <clears throat> well, yeah, let's uh, dig into this. So I saw this on the news recently, and apparently Gen Z has. Wait, a wait, wait, new- wait, hold on. You just pulled up the New York Post. <laughs> well, and you're, and you're saying <laughs> the news. <laughs> I think True. we should be clear here. <laughs> well, would it, would it have been better if I pulled it from TikTok? Because <laughs> I think that's where it came from originally. I think they're reporting about a, a trend on TikTok. So the latest Gen Z mo- movement, quote unquote, is putting your electronic devices away and your radios, your headphones, your earbuds, whatever you're using, and going out the front door of your residence and actually walking in silence. Isn't that amazing? That's Doesn't a, that remind that, that's you? That's a of- crazy idea. <laughs> I mean, you might even go into the woods or into the mountains even. Well, yeah, that's, that's a possibility, but that would take courage, wouldn't it? Something. It would take something. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is called silent walking, and uh, it does remind us of something that we talk about on a weekly basis. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> it is interesting. Podcaster yeah. Mady Mayo takes credit for, quote, unintentionally starting a movement that she promises, quote, will change your life. Wow. They're just rebranding hiking. That's awesome. No, hey, that's great. More power to them. Wow, that's fantastic. Put away your electronic <laughs> stuff and, and just, just go walking. I'm, I'm down with that. Uh, whatever th- you call it. I think the key... I'm starting to like, you know, I I got three of these Gen Z kids, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not doing that great with them. But <laughs> I think the key to this generation to unlock them is that they do respond very well to sort of language games. If you can describe something in a new way, they seem to gravitate towards that. So this is a good example of that. That's interesting. Yeah. Can you give another example of that? Um, (laughs) I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Let me think about it. I have to think about that. If something pops into my head during the show, I'll I'll, I'll interrupt, but I can't think of anything yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are a million things, but we're sort of wrapped up in that. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of examples, but I think they're like sort of out of bounds for like the the theme of this show. So, okay. Anyway. Not hiking related. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you don't want to get into it. But, um, Puppy. So, Stomp, you had also wanted to call out that there's a, uh, a show on HBO called Wardens of the North. Yeah, this is amazing. I'm sure there are a lot of heartbroken um, Northwoods Law fans out there that will be really happy to hear about this. Animal Planet did make another show. They made, they've made several, actually. They went down to Texas. Um, now they're up in Michigan, and they're filming Michigan conservation officers as they go about their, their warden duties up north. And uh, you can actually watch this, I would assume, on Animal Planet, but I'm not sure. I saw it on HBO Max a couple days ago. I've turned it on. These days, it's just Max. <laughs> True. There's no HBO yeah. anymore. It's just Max. Yeah. Some marketing genius is like, let's okay. let's take one of the most iconic brands and like get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Really? That's the new change, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Well, because because HBO is a part of it, but it incorporates all this other stuff. Yeah. So like Animal Planet and oh, I discover all these other right all I all see. these other brands. You can actually go to the section. And there's like an HBO section. Yeah. <laughs> Within Max. Anyway. Of so there you go. So uh, 
it just brings back memories though um rusty do you have any like stories have you you shared trail with northwood's law many times oh yeah they were great they were they were really fun guys too yeah um it's a funny time during new hampshire search and rescue yeah and then and then we would randomly i'd get friends calling me up and being like oh i just saw you on tv last night (laughs) Because, you know, there would be, there would always be, uh, you know, some, some rescue that had happened a year earlier. Because oh, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. one of the things that I thought was so interesting, and it makes sense, but it's not necessarily intuitive, that, you know, in the fall, they want to show autumn colors. Right, right. But the post-production and everything takes a while. And they, and they, they, they spend some time doing all that stuff, I guess. And mm. so they usually would show, like, it one year removed from whenever any of the action happened. Right. So if there was like, you know, foliage or whatnot, that was probably the year before when there was something, (laughs) if it was summertime, it was probably the summer before or spring or whatever season. Yeah. And so it was just far enough back that when somebody brings up something, they were like, oh, it was up on Mount Willard. We saw this. (laughs) Classic. And the class, yeah, that's, that's the one where, where, uh, uh, one one of the conservation officers actually named me by name. I think right, that's the right. one time I've been hey, named by name Rusty. on TV. <laughs> it was Matt Holmes. I, yes, I wish right. I wish I could do his accent justice to to be able to say you know true North Country guy. True, yeah, what a guy. He's awesome. Yeah. but he's he handed off a, a half a litter to me, uh-huh. a backpack. And oh, and, you have cruising. and I took off, and uh, and and then he went off and said some really nice things about how it's it's thanks to volunteers that they can get a lot of people off of the mountains. And yeah. the next scene, it was we're packaging up the person who collapsed up on top of Mount Willard. And yeah, did you find it distracting when they were on trail with us initially? Yeah, and then it was and just... then not so much, and then not so much because actually, I mean, there were a couple of times when um, they actually like helped. Oh, yeah, they were an asset. Yeah, sure. they, they would come in and, you know, carry for a while or something like that. Yeah, and the most impressive thing I remember, Mike, I don't know if I mentioned this, but when we were carrying or moving or searching or whatever, they would have 50 pounds of camera gear on them, and they would hustle past us and run 100 yards uphill to set up a shot. And they would do that over and over and over again. It was really interesting. They were actually in great shape. Uh, good crew. I miss those guys. They were fun. But anyway, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. But alas, how it's been f- quite a few years now, right? Four oh, years? Yeah, COVID uh, was the death knell, mm-hmm. I think, for that outfit up here anyway. So have you watched Wardens of the North? Does it have I, the same vibe as same exact, Same exact structure. I, earlier, I was trying to find out if it was Engel Entertainment, which was the showrunner yeah. for that one uh, prior. I just ran out of time. I didn't get down to that uh, answer, but same exact format. Cool. With All right. the, the deep boys, like, conservation officers risk their life. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> it was great. I would love to see what that guy looks like. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. The voiceover guy. Yeah, they never look yeah. like you think they will. No. So Check it out, people. Looks cool. All right. All right. So a little reminder here, if you want some stickers, uh, they're down at Ski Fanatics, uh, Exit 28 in Campton, or down at Spinner's Pizza Pala, Pala in massachusetts off of dascom road 93 south uh say hi to dolls and pops they love uh when listeners come in and say hi super cool all right stomp this is the part of the show where we typically talk about beer Uh, i have news Uh oh i got a waiver i got a waiver tonight who's in charge of giving a waiver (laughs) 
<laughs> Rusty, we've been doing uh, Sober October this month. Uh, Mike is also, but Mike had a waiver at the Mountains and Microbrews about, what, a week ago? Yeah, two weeks ago. So Mrs. Stomp gave me a waiver for tonight, and uh, I told her that. I told her the story I told you. It's like every time there's a time that we're together on trail or uh, training or whatever, Rusty's always the first one that says, hey, anybody want to go for a beer? And I inevitably have to do something, so... I got the waiver so he and I could share a beer together tonight for this nice occasion. Yeah, and it's it's, it's a yummy double IPA. Yeah, it's a double. Which is why it's a good thing we're sitting. <laughs> and not silent walking. <laughs> what's what's the uh yeah. What's the brand of beer that you're drinking? Oh, it's the classic. It's uh the Wizard by Burlington Beer Works and uh it's a double IPA. It's my go-to. It's really good. All right, well, yeah, enjoy. I'll be drinking my water. I already had my pass for the, <laughs> the month. All right, so All right. this is the part where we talk about our recent hikes. Have you been hiking anywhere? Oh, just little things here and there. Um, Mrs. Stomp and I made it up to the Scour, which is uh, something we've talked about before. It's off of the uh, Livermore Trailhead in Waterville, about two miles in. Great for foliage, so we just zipped up there. And uh, enjoyed the view for a while. And it was a moody day, like every single day has been for the last several months. Uh, but that made, made it really interesting, just the colors. Um, so that was about it. Uh, went up to Upper Hall Pond, but that's a drive. That's more or less a drive for fun up to a beautiful pond with a mountain view up on Sandwich Notch Road. That's about it. Have you been out, Rusty? I mean, the most recent interesting one, I think I told you about this. It was probably two weeks ago. I uh, did a nice trail run of sort of the the full Franconia Ridge. So, oh. went up the Skookumchuck, went across all the mountains on the ridge, mm-hmm. and then came down uh, Flume Slide. And was reminded why I, <laughs> I, I never... I recommend highly that nobody ever goes down Flume Slide. But, <laughs> yeah, but the guys I was running with really wanted to go north to south along Franconia Ridge. Okay. And that was, uh, that was a beautiful... It was one of those days that it was you know in the clouds the whole day, but it was occasionally they would lift and you'd get a bit of a view and then it would sock back in. Makes it even better. It made it really great. And uh, the whole way up and we left at like, I don't know, noon on a Sunday... And yeah. um, the whole way up the Skook, saw two people. Uh, it skook was is pretty so cool. Great. That's great. And then we got to the top of Lafayette. Conga line. There were there were t- <laughs> we we started counting. We thought it would be kind of fun, and we were, we were making bets on what the numbers would be. And we were betting in the like, yeah, I bet we're going to cr- pa- cross paths, you know, either pass the going the same direction or pass going the opposite direction. Yep. We were guessing like, ah, 30, 35, it's not that great weather, it's, it's, it's damp, it's chilly, whatever. We got up to uh, 119. Oh, wow. That you passed. Yeah, that we motion. passed. Hold on the, the ridge. Almost all of that was on the ridge. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I don't think I don't think we passed one person uh, on on a flume slide. How many flip flops <laughs> did you see? I wasn't paying attention. I don't think. <laughs> actually, honestly, I don't think there were any because you know there were there was the full range of what people were wearing, but right. it was from like you know normal what you'd expect to be out when it's you know upper forties and whatever yeah. down to like puffy jackets and and rain jackets and all this you yeah, know, heavy out. duty yes yeah they yeah. were yeah that's great wow that's funny is my my last question about this how fast did you uh do the loop or from skook down 
Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't crazy fast. It mm. was because uh, what is that? Fourteen miles, and we did it in under five hours. It was, but yeah. we weren't. We weren't enjoying crushing it. it. We were enjoying it. We we went out. Oh, one of my favorite things to do when I'm when I'm casually going across the ridge, you know, on the north side of Lincoln, yeah. there's that detached pillar. Yes. You can you can step oh, yeah, out and you spire, can right? yeah little, you yeah. can you can climb across. It's like one step across a void. Yeah, but it looks right. like it's going to break can get off. Some, it really does. It hasn't yet, um, and it looks you get some of the coolest pictures <laughs> of standing out on this little spire that's out there. That's really big at the top, and it's really skinny at the bottom. So you jump onto it. You sort of step across onto it. It's not really a jump, and then and then actually going oh, out onto never. it, you're sort of going up. So that's not too hard. Sure. And then you realize to go go back, you sort of have to step down and across the void to step back onto you know terra firma. Wow. So all uh, I got all the other guys to go yeah, do that yeah, as yeah. well because they'd never done that. It was, yeah, Mike. It was his tolerance for this stuff is way beyond what we would ever consider yeah, my, so my palms are already nothing. sweating I, I know exactly what you're talking about I've, I've sort of pondered that before I'm like it doesn't look that hard to get out there but yeah no I don't think so and it really isn't yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a cool spot yeah. it's, it's nice of course I say that now and like next weekend it'll fall over or something <laughs> yeah that's what it does Never look know. like it's going to break off so that's incredible yeah. wow well, yeah. so no we, we, we had a good time yeah. I'm curious, Rusty, what um, what was their insistence on, because uh, I feel the same way about going across the ridge, like I prefer to look towards Liberty and Flume, I feel like that view is a lot cooler, but did did they give a yeah. particular reason why they wanted to go north to south? No, no. They, I think they just like like the view going that way, mm-hmm. and, and also it's sort of nice to generally be going downhill, Yeah, you know, I mean obviously there's plenty of ups and plenty of downs, but you're... You get up to the high point of Lafayette, and every peak after that is lower. Yes, right. Yep, mm. makes sense. Makes sense. Well, I was uh, I did a little adventure on Mount Adams. So we were originally going to do like an overnight trip and a whole thing. And Nobby wanted to do like six of these terrifying twenty-five trails, but like the weather was just horrendous. So we ended up deciding to just do a day hike on Friday. The original plan was to go up. Um, airline, go down Shamin Des Dame, and then go up the Great Gully, and then down <laughs> Castle that, Trail. That's 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 how the French say it, right? I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, so I, honestly, Nobby was even worse than me. He was like Chemin Des Dame or, or whatever, but I said Shamin yeah. Des Dame. No, he said Chem. Yeah, Chem Des Dame or whatever. It's like the fourth stooge, yeah. like <laughs> Molarier. Yeah. What did you say? Chem. It was like the uh, Danny Zuko from the Greece. <laughs> there's dames so the whole thing just turned into a disaster so um it was uh, it was a gross day and we got up airline it was fine impressed but once we started going down like i forgot about that trail that trail is a um it's a car wash in the beginning so I always thought of that trail as like, oh, it's just kind of open rocks, but it's not. It's like a lot of like trees and you've got to cut through. So I had my rain jacket on. I didn't wear rain pants, but Nobby had, the guy I was hiking with had rain pants. So he was better off, but my pants got soaked. And the at like 4,400 feet, when we started the first like 150 feet, 200 feet, the boulders were all iced over. 
but you can't wear micro spikes because there's no snow, so it was almost useless. So it was just really slow going in that icy section, and then then we got to the section where it was all trees, and we got you know we're knocking the water off the trees because it's kind of like misting out, and we're just soaked. And then we get to the bottom section, and it's more bouldering, and it's super slippery. And we just decided, like, we got down the bottom before you get into, like, the subway and heading back up the Great Gully. And I said this to Nobby. I was like, look, we're going to get up above 4,400 feet, and it's going to ice up again. And we're going to have another probably 600 feet to climb to get up to the head wall on the Great Gully. And I don't know what that's going to be like. And then you got to, then we have to deal with 70 mile an hour winds across the ridge to get to castle trail and i was like we could go down into like the randolph mountain huts and then approach it that way so we're out of the wind a little bit but it's you know we'll be out of we'll be out of the woods by like nine o'clock at night so we just decided to bail out and we just we just left from king ravine and just went back to appalachia refresh refresh everybody's memory what was the route? The intent. The original route. route was airline to Chemin Des Dames, and then through the subway. <laughs> so you just you just wanted me to say that word again, <laughs> <laughs> And then up Great no, Gully, no. Uh, and then across Gulfside to Castle Trail. So essentially, you go into Jefferson, pretty much, uh, and then down the Castle trail. Castle again. That's like the trail that comes up from. Um, Route two, Grain? to Jefferson. Oh, I got you. Oh, oh okay. It's so the that far was, side that of Castle com- Ravine. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so that would have completed his. No, T25? that would have given. Th- he has six left. Oh, he has five left now. That would have given oh, him three out of okay. the six. But we ended up getting just oh, one. Well, oh, man, I saw the video. You were coming down Chemin de Dom. Yes. <laughs> Very gingerly, really I mean, slow. Have you ever done that trail out of? I actually haven't. I've, 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 I've seen the signs and thought that looks cool. What's the trail name again, gone. Rusty? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always thought it was something like Shemenda Dam, yes. but that's just yeah. me. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure the listener is going to let us know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's some francophone out there who can who can set us straight. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But the but the most striking thing, Nobby made a video about this. It was soaked, soaked. as you guys were coming down. And it, it's got to be at least 60 degrees, 60, 70 degrees, rock hopping the whole way down. Yeah. yeah. And I love in the video, you said, this is what? This is the worst idea ever. Oh, this is the dumbest idea ever, yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, this is not sounding like silent walking. This was I mean, not silent like, walking. This is, this is like walking and cursing. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, and there is a video. Matter of fact, the video was kind of funny because I, like, Nobby started recording, and I was like, I was like, yeah, just let's record our failure here. This was ridiculous. So, uh, that's epic. Well, at least you made the right call. How were the winds up there? It was picking up. So when we got was- when we got above tree line, it was picking up. And I think they said that day there was like seventy, eighty mile an hour wind. Yeah, so. yeah, I remember that forecast. It was pretty rugged. Yeah, my biggest concern was if we had gone up Great Gully, like that last section of Great Gully, with the wind and then the freezing rock, if we were forced to kind of, we'd have to, if we had to bail out, the only option we would have is to bail down Lowe's Path to the cabins. And if it's icy, it's going to be slow going. Yeah. So it's that time of the year. Is Navi disappointed? 
He was fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was hoping to get you after his, your finish. I know, I know. We'll, we'll take care of him next year. Maybe next time. Yep. All right. So, hey, we have a sponsor. Uh, do you have a sweat problem? Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There's a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem. Laucluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, size 15 liters to 65 liters, and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over 3 ounces. Whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. So visit VaucluseGear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code SLASHER to enjoy a $5 discount and let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. And uh, we do have some notable hikes this week. And, yeah, um, and Stomp, just from a, a, a time check, we'll probably just limit this to like a couple and then we'll, we'll push them the next week. Yeah, it sounds great. The first, the first one is really impressive here. So D Norris thirty nine, thirty three tagged us, and uh, apparently he tackled a Pemi Loop and a Prezi single day, which amounted to twenty four thousand plus elevation gain over twenty nine hours and twenty one summits. Not too shabby. <laughs> yeah, Rusty's. That's approval. impressive. That's impressive. That's an oh, overachiever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see. We have also Rocket and Ginger celebrated their six years of marriage on Friday the 13th, tackling three days of peaks around the Sunapee Greenway. Congratulations, guys. Uh, that's epic. I'm glad for you guys. Yeah, nice I actually us. saw some of their pictures. They, they had a good trip. Yeah, for sure. And let's see. We had a, we had a whole bunch this week. Vets on the 48 did some trail maintenance on Tecumseh Trail. Thank you. That was the Tripoli Road side, which is less used than the ski lot side. Isn't it Triple I? Triple I. <laughs> He's just digging us deeper in the hole, huh, Mike? <laughs> What's well, funny is resting I mean, he says hole. it that way because he usually does call it Triple I. You know why I do that? Because back in Mass, there's Triple I pizza. Yeah. Uh, I mean, pizza, it's, it's pizza weird pizza. because it's not the same... Triple E, triple I. It's not. It's not the same pronunciation as the whatever city in North Africa, right? Like that the, uh, the famous song that the the Marine. What is it? The yeah, the Marine the Marine Corps hymn or whatever it is. Triple I, triple E. Yeah, I think it's triple I. I don't Road. know where I get that. I'm pretty sure it's triple I Road. Okay, yeah, yeah, I believe it is, but not the shores of Tripoli. <laughs> not the shores of Tripoli. But the but the pizza place on the beach is called Tripoli's. Correct. Yes. Oh, so it is pronounced Tripoli. Well, right, the so one I'm in, in Hampton is Tripoli's Pizza. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. Okay. There's a genesis somewhere on that word. I'm just going to put that one to, to bed for now. I, I imagine a listener is going to have all the answers. Oh, here's a question for you. Jewel or Jewel? <laughs> I've never thought about that. Hmm? I've, always, I've always called it the Jewel Trail. <sighs> but is it Jewel? I mean, it's spelled Jewel. There's right. two L's. Right. Yeah. I, I, that's, my, uh, that's my thesis on it anyway. Anyway, that's another one that we're yeah, stumped on. There we go. 
Musalak, Musalake. Stop. I'm not having this conversation again. Stop. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like the Musalak, Musalaki thing comes up a lot. That and I think uh, both are appropriate. Correct. That's, yeah. Apparently, uh, Steve Smith. I mean, if Steve says it's it's okay to go with either either one then then i listen to steve <laughs> yes that's right steve knows yeah that's correct all right so thank you everybody for tagging us um and uh yeah moving on all right rusty you ready for your big moment this is your segment ah, how exciting have you ever been on a podcast Has, by the way i don't think so i think this is the first this is this is my my very first time Wow! It's, it, this is exciting times. This is you made the big time. You made the big time. You <laughs> big time. All five of our I, listeners I feel are honored. Hear you. This is awesome. Yeah. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so, Rusty, why don't you... Well, stop, actually. Why don't you tee it off and just explain to the listeners who this guy is? Yeah, who is this who guy? Who is he? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, well, Rusty and I met exclusively through Search and Rescue um, several years ago. Um, after I moved up here, I joined the team. Uh, and Rusty, I think at the time you were a lieutenant on the team. Sounds about right. Yeah. And you and I basically meet each other when we're on trails on calls. <laughs> That's or, about it. <laughs> or or at, uh, at, at board meetings or at <laughs> trainings or, you yeah. know, things related to that. Yeah. That's it. But uh, I've come to uh, really uh, admire you and appreciate your company on trail and uh rusty's are uh, uh just an absolute staple in the region uh especially for his search and rescue and endeavors and uh your charitable time with adaptive sports right and all kinds of different things i mean you, you volunteer for ems as well well i'm uh not not exactly ems i'm yeah. on the i'm on the sugar hill fire department gotcha which which is like a volunteer fire department so which it's just is a, all the locals there it's just mind-numbing, though. You're so busy doing this and that, and then you have time to follow your passion, climbing and biking and you name it. Rusty's has his hands in everything, and uh, we're really happy that you're here tonight because uh, we've been doing this for uh, almost two years now. We've never really taken a deep dive on the, the rock climbing community, so no better person than you to be here to, to tackle that with us, so really appreciate it. Well, that's really kind of you guys. So, <clears throat> thanks for having me. I'm I'm psyched <laughs> to be here. I I I love the mountains. I love uh, this little corner of our world, which so great. I uh, I'm I'm quite. I try to be quite the evangelist of just how awesome the whites are and how awesome New Hampshire is. That I don't really think there's anywhere in the United States where you have as high a density of like world-class activities in a <laughs> yeah. small area yeah. as we have here. I mean, I know people that are like surfing in the morning and then come back up to go skiing or climbing or whatever yeah, it's a good in the point. afternoon, right? And yeah. we've got the mountains, we've got the ocean pretty easy to get to. The surfing isn't that bad. I'm not a surfer, but I hear it's great. Oh, sure. Um, you've got road biking, you've got mountain biking, you've got hiking, you've got... Um, 
obviously rock climbing and ice climbing. I mean, this really is probably, and you know, this is debatable, but I think just about the best place in the country if you're into winter sports for sure for ice yeah. climbing. Now, the the least awesome of the winter sports around here are the snow sports. And they're still pretty awesome, right? <laughs> if I had a choice between going skiing in the Alps or in the White Mountains, I would definitely choose, you know, the Alps or the Wasatch or whatever. Gotcha, yeah. So, I mean, but I love backcountry skiing here too or, or skiing at some of the mountains. But for ice climbing, ooh, primo, so good. Uh, wow, that's interesting. That's something we didn't even add onto the script. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. All the good stuff. Yeah, wow. And Rusty, did you grow up in New Hampshire? No, I didn't. Um, I'm actually from outside Washington, D.C., so I'm, I'm totally a transplant. I uh, came up to the area for college, uh, sort of fell in love with the mountains during college, um, got into climbing and, and other activities like that uh, when I was in school. Afterwards, moved down to uh, the Boston area to be a management consultant, but sort of commuted back every weekend. Then ended up landing after traveling around and doing all sorts of things, ended up landing down back down in Washington, D.C. And my wife and I decided that, you know, we, we really consider our spiritual home to be the White Mountains. Yeah. So when the opportunity arose to relocate, we moved up here and haven't, haven't looked back. It's been great. Like, the only, the only area that could use... Uh, a little like uh, evolution here is that uh, we could use more ethnic restaurants, I think, up in the White Mountains and <laughs> and more point. ethnic diversity. You know, between those things, you know, uh, we've got to drive from where we live. It's a solid hour to get Indian food. Like you've either got to go over to North Conway or to, to Hanover. Right, right. You know, stuff like that. There's, I remember when I worked, so yeah. I worked at at Fidelity in Merrimack years ago and there was a couple of good Indian places in Merrimack um, I can't remember the names of them but yeah you're right I can't think of any like really good Indian places um, too close by but yeah it's a good point actually I, I think that's a although North Conway has a good Thai place so yeah no and North Conway has has an, uh, an Indian restaurant so you know North Conway does but again that's an hour Plymouth. away from me Plymouth too I think Plymouth does Really? Yeah, I think I'm so. not. I'm not aware of a Indian restaurant in Thai anyway. Oh, oh, Thai. Yeah, no, Thai there is sure. there is a good Thai restaurant down there. Yeah, Indian. No, and no. and there's a perfectly good. There's two good Thai restaurants in Littleton, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you know, things things are changing. True. We, mm. we certainly have plenty of really good beers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually, and that's what's wild about that is, think about it. That's much of that has been in the last ten years. Sure. I mean, Woodstock Brewery has been around for a really long time, but but yeah. aside from that, so many of the breweries <laughs> are exploded. Pretty recent additions, and they're pretty amazing. Yeah, no, no question. Yeah, they are. And and Rusty, your um, so your cl- your sort of interest in outdoor sports and things like that sounds like you connected in college um, and got into it a little bit. Um, can you talk about like that progression? Was it uh, sort of learning by sort of trial and error, or did you have like friends and mentors that were able to show you sort of the basics around um, climbing and hiking? Sure, sure. So I think I got into uh, 
climbing and mountaineering and all that, what I would view as sort of the old-fashioned way. My, my parents were really big uh, backpacker, hiker types. So like every summer, we would go on a two-week backpacking trip, usually somewhere out west. And, you know, that was sort of one of the, the big parts of the summer where you're out there in the woods, digging cat holes, doing all that stuff, right? Um, and I grew up initially as a little kid, not loving the fact that I had to go and be without a real toilet for a couple of weeks and stuff. But then, but then pretty soon you realize how awesome it is to be able to scramble up mountains and be away from people and all the good stuff. And they would always, you know, basically sort of, you'd hike in a, a few days to get to some place that's beautiful and have sort of a base camp there and then scramble up. It was always non-technical with them, but it was scrambling up to the top of big mountains. And it's just that, I think instilled this sort of love of being up high and moving, moving through gorgeous places. Mm. And then, you know, with the Boy Scouts, I did a little bit of technical rock climbing. Um, both of my parents actually, interestingly, had done technical climbing back when they were in college in the 40s and 50s, but, but had moved away from that. And so we'd never used a rope when we were together. And then I got you know, went to college and for my freshman trip, most of the freshmen, you know, you'd sign up for some activity and it would either be, you know, hiking or kayaking or mountain biking or whatever it was. And I saw climbing and I was like, oh, that's, that's something I've, I've done a couple of times. And that was pretty darn cool. So signed up for that and kind of fell in love with it. And, and one of the great things, and so this was at, at Dartmouth College. And one of the great things about Dartmouth is that it has this, you know, century long history of the the Dartmouth Mountaineering Club, which, you know, goes back to some of the sort of epic climbs of the day of, you know, Jack Durrance, who was the first, one of the first people to uh, be, uh, you know, climb Devil's Tower. And also there's, you know, it's the Durrance route on Devil's Tower and, you know, climbing even up on K2 and all sorts of stuff like that. And long history of, of the Mountaineering Club. And so, in the framework of the club, there really is this sort of mentorship that you can get. Now, in college, I was a, a lightweight rower. So, I spent most of my time sitting in a boat, pulling on an oar, um, going backwards, uh, hurting. Um, and and it, was, it was great. Had awesome experiences. Got to, got to travel to Europe and stuff. But once I got out of college... I'd had enough experience climbing that I was just jazzed on it. And out of college, I only had like a very demanding job. And all of a sudden, I had all this free time, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was much easier than what college had been. And so, so that's when I really started to get into to climbing. And I ended up meeting up with other folks who wanted to go on some expeditions. So, I went, you know, out to the west climbing on you know some of the the volcanoes out there initially it was really getting into climbing more from sort of a mountaineering standpoint and did a did a little expedition to nepal and went up some of the smaller mountains over there and then all the while also learning a bit more about sport climbing and trad climbing and ice climbing you know all those things which got started when i was in college and just sort of accelerated afterwards and i found that i would get really into a certain activity or another activity and there was some one one period of life where i got really into road race bicycle racing road racing and that was fantastic and then i realized that i really missed climbing 
And I <laughs> went back to that, you know, and then I got into triathlons and then I realized, wait a second, this I'm taking a whole lot of time to do this, but I don't get the same level of satisfaction from that than I do. So I'm, I'm sort of a mix of endurance athlete and, and I also really like climbing and just traveling fast in the mountains. So that's, that's a little bit of my backstory. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I think is so fantastic about the White Mountains is that you have all of those different disciplines really close together and a wide range of the different types of the disciplines. And what I mean by that is, you know, not too far away, you know, there's a lot of folks who are really into bouldering, which is climbing without a rope on small features. You know, most of the time that's 15 or 20 feet or less and you have pads that you put down at the base of the rock so you can just jump off the rock, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's sport climbing, which is where the bolts have been drilled into the rock. They're expansion bolts that are drilled into the rock, extremely strong. And as you climb up the rock, you clip the rope through a a carabiner, basically, into a bolt that's already set in the rock, and you you get to the top. And usually, you know, Rumney is an example of a world-class sport climbing area. There's, you know, over 800 routes there, and people travel from all over the world to come. And 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 it's mostly schist. And yeah. so it's that, that style of climbing. And usually that's face climbing. So that means that there's, it would be hard to actually find cracks and things to put uh, other forms of protection into aside from the bolts. Without which are, the bolts. Without yeah. the bolts. Interesting. And then we have all of, you know, New Hampshire is called the Granite State. And so there's lots of granite here. And so mm-hmm. then we've got granite that climbs very similarly to what you find in Yosemite. And that's like, on Cannon Cliff, much around Franconia Notch, and then over in the Conway area as well. Huntington? Yep, up there. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's granite up there, up high. <clears throat> and then you've got, uh, up up in the mountains, you've got like ridge scrambles, like yep. Henderson's Ridge, right? And you've got some of these other things that are more sort of mountaineering oriented. And then, then we go to the winter, and you've got like ice climbing, pretty much technical ice climbing evolved in the White Mountains. So the whole, the technique of front pointing and the use of uh, aggressive um, ice tools, Mm -hmm. you know, in in North America, at least, it evolved to a great degree. A lot of the mountaineers who were based out of the, out of the Boston area and wanted to go to the greater ranges to climb really big stuff, Mm -hmm. They honed their craft here and then went off, you know, for a number of the, the really, you know, classic expeditions to K2 and to other places over in the Karakoram and, and the Himalaya. They, they honed their craft and dealt with the weather and dealt with the ice and the snow and all this stuff, you know, right here on our, you know, quote unquote, little mountains. Yeah. And uh, it's still, still fantastic, right? And oh, yeah. we have the, the, the highest density of easy to access natural ice climbs that what well, waterfall ice climbs that mm-hmm. compared with pretty much anywhere in the united states um well within within like an hour and a half drive of right here it's that's fantastic i mean california mm-hmm. wonderful place you know yosemite is there there's beaches there's mountains there's amazing rock climbing next to no ice climbing there there are a couple of places you can ice climb yeah it makes sense you go like up uh, Pacific Northwest, eh, there's some ice climbing. There's a lot of, you know, alpine ice, which is more like glaciers and things like that, even some steep ones. Certainly in the Rockies, you can get some amazing ice climbs, but most of those places are like 
deep, long distances from the nearest road in Montana or Wyoming. You know, Colorado has some pretty, pretty amazing places, but actually the, the best place to ice climb in Colorado is uh, man-made ice in, in Uray, mm-hmm. where they actually have an ice farm. It's kind of wild. There's like a, uh, a valley where they pour water down the sides to create the ice climbs. <laughs> so, so anyway, but I mean, so compared to any of those other places, here we just have all of this amazing ice. And the, the variable conditions that we have in the winter actually end up creating really cool features that, that vary from year to year and even from, you know, time of the season. Um, you know, whereas on a rock climb or something, the climb is the climb. And, and ho- hopefully it doesn't change too much from year to year. Whereas for an ice climb, you know, as the season progresses, the actual way that the ice has formed and the, the firmness of the ice and so much more about the climb changes the experience hugely even within a single year. And then if there's a slight change in the flow of water for some reason, a totally different line can form. So you, right. can, you might have a situation where like a tree falls up, up on a hillside somewhere and that redirects some water to a new little portion of a cliff where then, then a new ice climb that no one else, you know, n- never formed in the past, all of a sudden it forms. So ice climbing is a really, really cool thing. And New England is really unique for having a lot of them really close to here, both, both in the White Mountains and then up in, uh, in Vermont and a handful oh, yeah. of places. Lake Willoughby is, you know, probably the best hard ice climbing this side of the Canadian Rockies is, is up there on Lake Willoughby. So, gotcha. yeah. Anyway. I could just talk forever and ever. Know, so no, please jump in and, and well, cut me off and tell me. I guess my question around climbing is like, I always get intimidated. I see you guys walking like in with all these ropes and all this hardware and equipment. And, and it just, to me, always feels like, wow, there's a, there's a very high barrier for entry. Um, but it sounds to me like, you know, there's also a high risk involved here. So maybe that's probably a good thing uh, that there's a little bit of a higher barrier of entry. But can you talk a little bit about from your perspective, like what would be the best way to start to get into climbing and learning about this? Is it to start in the climbing gym or do you, you just hire a guide? What is your what is your perspective? Yeah, I think I think you've got a really good point there and actually you use you're using the exact same words that i often use in thinking about this because when um when i moved up here i had this mistaken impression that anyone who grew up within you know a 10 20 30 miles of of cannon cliff must just grow up climbing on cannon cliff because it's such an amazing feature and you know when i lived in dc i would drive up from washington dc to do a climb on cannon and then drive back the next day right it's 10 hours each way and it was worth it because it's such a grand adventure um i moved up here and when i went to cannon i realized that wait a second most of the people climbing on cannon have traveled quite a ways Mm -hmm. and there weren't that many locals um you know on this side of the mountains who were actually you know, out there climbing. And most of the people were, were traveling from somewhere else. And the logic the, of why that's the case, you know, eventually came clear to me, which is just exactly what you said, Mike, which is that there is a high barrier to entry and there's a, a, a lot of knowledge that one needs to have to manage the risk. Um, and especially for um, folks who aren't, who don't have some entry point, it's, it's really daunting, and it should be really daunting, right? I mean, we don't want, I don't think any of us think it's a good idea no. for, for beginners to go out and 
see what's going to happen. Although, Cannon, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although, I mean, it is funny to look back in the history of climbing. Often is you, you read the autobiographies of some of these amazing climbers, and they're like, "Yeah, I was 15 years old, and a buddy and I got a." You know, the, the string off of the uh, uh, clothes drying rack and, you know, went out and decided to climb with that and stuff. It's like, oh, my God, how did these people survive? <laughs> um, but but uh, that was that was a, a lot of the, you know, coming back to the, the story I was starting to tell, which is when I got here, thought, wow, there should be a lot more climbers here. That would be great. This is like, imagine growing up in Aspen and not even considering skiing or or you know, right. Yeah. It, it, it just struck me as this like crazy thought. And so that's why I was thinking, you know what this place needs. It needs uh, to lower that barrier of entry by creating a rock climbing gym. And so the nearest climbing gym at the time was down in Concord, which is a solid hour and a half. There's a nice, big, beautiful gym down there or up in Burlington, Vermont, which is, you know, two hours in the opposite direction um, or down in, uh, Portland, Maine, which again, is like two, right, two and right. a half hours away. And so by building a climbing gym, that is the way that folks can go to a controlled environment, learn a lot of the same basic skills that are going to serve you very well outside. So how to tie in, how to belay, and a lot of the movement. Have a great time in the process, right? I mean, oh, sure. find, out if, find out if it's your thing. Find out if you really get the joy from that movement and find that this, you know, 3D sort of puzzle yeah, right. that is climbing, right? It's, it's, it's solving problems and figuring out, okay, so the hold is facing this direction and gravity is pulling this direction. Body weight. And my body is, exactly, it's, it's, all, it's all this fascinating. It's so thoughtful, and I mean, what, what I think is fascinating is so often people think of climbing as being this adrenaline sport or being thrilling. And like, it's funny when I use chat GPT to try to help with marketing or something like that, almost every time it'll throw in the word thrilling. <laughs> and it's like, you know, that's not really what climbing is about. Like if, I, if, if my adrenaline is flowing, something is not good going right (laughs) generally speaking you know it's it's one thing if you're you know base jumping or something like that which that that's 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 an adrenaline sport (laughs) climbing is is thoughtful and using strength and balance and solving problems and and being in these amazing situations at least that's that's what i see as being the value and if you listen to the interviews with you know some of the top climbers you know alex honold who a lot of people think oh my gosh he must be Mm. such a thrill seeker and then then you, you you hear these interviews with him and he's like no if 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 i'm freaking out i'm in trouble that that's bad like i don't want to yeah. be freaking out um but uh so the climbing gym is a great entry point and that's that's going to get the basics and you can actually even learn you know you learn to top rope belay there so top rope belaying is when there's an anchor at the top and the rope is flowing through that and you have a climber at one end of the rope and a belayer at the other end and as the climber goes up the belayer takes the rope in so that if the climber falls, they don't go anywhere. They, they dangle on the rope. Right. Um, indoor gyms also allow folks to lead climb. And that's very similar to, to sport climbing outside. And so that's where the belayer is letting rope out as the climber climbs up and clips the rope through um, bolts that are attached to the wall. And now when, whenever you start lead climbing, that's where some degree of, of risk enters the equation or a greater degree of risk enters the equation because you can actually fall. So if you imagine 
if you're five feet above your last piece of gear, you've got five feet of rope out and you fall, you're going to fall the five feet to that last piece and then the five feet past it. And by the way, these are dynamic ropes, so they're going to stretch. We want them to stretch. It would actually be incredibly dangerous if they didn't stretch. Oh, yeah. And also, you've got to have some slack in the system because the rope isn't taut when you fall, usually. So, if you're five feet above your last piece of protection, you're talking about falling at least, eh, probably in the 15-foot range, right? Mm. Which, which is actually a long way, right? Yep. Um, now, in the climbing gym, usually the bolts are only three feet or so apart, so you're not looking at really big falls, mm. but there are falls there. So, so that sort of steps up that level of, you know, some degree of, of risk. It also increases the skill. It just adds more variables to it. And then you can take that outside and go to a place, you know, like, a, like Romney, sport climbing, where it's very similar in a lot of ways to what you have indoors, where you have the bolts already in the rock. You have the trails leading right there. Usually the rock is really clean and it's unlikely that any rock's going to break off or anything, although it still can happen. And so again, you've, you've got a, a small set of, of uh, variables and most of the focus is on the difficulty of the climbing. And then you can also then sort of step that up by then moving to what's called traditional climbing, which is where you're actually placing the gear into the cracks um, using either um, spring-loaded camming devices or chocks, you know, little metal nut-type things that go into the cracks. And generally speaking, when you move from sport to trad, again, there's more variables involved. Often, you're on rock that is more fractured and might have a higher likelihood of being able to get off-route because you're not just following a line of bolts. Mm. And, and so on and so forth. And then you get to bigger and bigger walls from a single pitch, which is a single rope length, which is what most things at, at Rumney are, for example, to bigger and bigger things like, again, Cannon, which is you know, close to 1,000 feet tall. You've got routes that are 10 rope lengths long to get up the wall. You might, that's a pitch. A rope length? A rope length, yeah. A, gotcha. pitch. a pitch is another word for a rope length. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Do you, as, uh, as you climb when, up. when you're climbing so. Cannon or Cathedral Ledge or some of these larger ones, how common is it that you would take a, a trad approach versus um, working on a route that already has anchor set? So, so uh, the anchors are often there even on trad routes. Oh, okay. So that's, that's one of those things that <laughs> there's, there's a big question mark. You know, if, if the route is regularly, if you have to repel off the route, then usually there's going to be some sort of a fixed anchor. And that's either going to be bolts or it's a tree that has material around the tree or, uh, you know, some places we still have pitons. We're not usually adding that many pitons, but sometimes there's pitons that are fixed into the rock that, that stay put. We don't take them out. Okay. Um, but so if it's a climb that it is most likely you're going to rappel down, then almost always there's a f there are fixed anchors at the end of each rope length. If it's a climb that you get to the top of and you then walk off or go off the backside of the mountain – um, depending on where it's at, that's when often there's situations where you actually have to fix, you know, create your own anchor from, from natural gear at each, the end of each pitch. Um, so, Cannon's a great example of this where the, the really prominent, famous ridge there on sort of the left side of the cliff as you're looking up at it, 
there's this this really prominent ridge called the Whitney Gilman Ridge, which uh, was first climbed in 1929. And at the time that it was climbed, apparently it was the hardest climb in North America. It was originally climbed in 17 pitches, 17 rope lengths, and they didn't bring any gear with them to fix it. They The only gear that they had was wrapping a hemp rope around horns of rock. I mean, it's pretty oh. intense to think that back in you know 1929, people were doing this stuff. <laughs> um, but, you know, <laughs> that is a very sort of traditional route, and there are no fixed anchors. So, if you get partway up and a storm hits you and you decide that you need to rappel off, you are leaving gear behind. Yeah. Um, and that's just part of the game. Um, on other parts of Canon, other parts of uh, a lot of other um, formations, there there are bolted anchors. Um, and, and a number of the climbs, even on the main wall of Canon, most people only go partway up and then rappel, you know, partway up the cliff and then rappel down um, when they're done with the, the pitches that they want to be climbing. Um, mm. So, it, it varies. It's interesting. It also sort of depends on the rock. So, a uh, place like Whitehorse you know, on the, the east face of Whitehorse is a, is a huge slab, mm-hmm. right? It's like 1,200 feet of low angle climbing and it sort of has this ocean-like, uh, ocean of rock feel to it. And that's north of Cathedral. I think it's actually south of Cathedral. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But yeah. same. It's area. right. It's, it's, it's you, can, you can jog between them if you really wanted to. Okay, gotcha. They're, they're like a mile apart. Um, they're both sort of above Echo Lake right there. Okay. Um, the other Echo Lake. Gotcha. Why do we have so many Echo Lakes here in the White Mountains? See, like, I'm a North Conway guy, so for me, that's the only Echo Lake. But uh, (laughs) I go to the one in Canada, and I'm like, oh, there's another Echo Lake. Exactly. Like, there's, but again, Echo Lakes and Black Mountains, there are so many of those. Yes. There, there's quite a few. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like on, um, certainly on the slabs on Whitehorse, in a lot of places, there's just not, cracks in the rock to place your own gear so the anchors are fixed anchors there's there's bolts in a lot of places there that they sort of need to be and the question of putting bolts in rock is a a huge question uh especially especially in the north conway area um there's there's people that are uh very strongly believe that if you can possibly do anything that doesn't involve a bolt you should there's other people that uh swing in the direction of thinking that everything should have lots of bolts on it and it should be very uh, safe and minimize risk. And there's a huge area in between those. And I think most people fall somewhere in the middle, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it continues to be a bit of a discussion. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's funny back in the eighties when and this is before I was climbing um, back in the eighties, when, when folks started doing sport climbing, and actually, Rumney was one of the earlier areas to start getting bolted for sport climbing. You know, there was this these huge sort of battles within the climbing community about, you know, people still have t-shirts that said, sport climbing is neither, um, to basically say, you know, it's not really climbing if, if there's bolts in the wall, and it's yeah. not really a sport either. It's just, you know, the, uh, the activity that people like to do. And, do you know the history on Rumney? I mean... Was that discovered at a, a time and then it became commercial? Or was it like a hidden gem at one point with just locals knowing about it? How did that area develop? Uh, that's a good question. I am not an aficionado of the, the history of Romney. But I, I do know that by 
the mid-90s, it was a very well-known sport climbing destination. I mean, there were already hundreds of climbs there. Um, certainly from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, there was an awful lot of development. And, and actually, it's kind of wild that that sort of continues to this day, even though it's it's been pretty tapped out is a strong word but but sure. a lot of the small crags there's there's bolted you know roots going up there mm-hmm. um but uh i mean like anywhere it begins off sure. where it's it's because it's not unlike a big feature like canon where mm-hmm. you can't miss it rumney if you drove by you wouldn't even necessarily think oh there's going to be amazing climbing there you'd look up and like oh yeah if you look up there you can see some <laughs> cliffs yeah yeah um, but sure. nothing but nothing massive and that i think really sort of speaks to that generational change from the sort of early generation of climbers back uh, you know especially you go go back to like the late 20s right when they first started climbing up these big things where it was like okay we're gonna go up Mount Washington and oh by the way okay there's Huntington Ravine so there's the steep part of Mount Washington but we still want to go to the top pretty much and then it's like well what about other things that don't go to the top of something but are a big cliff ooh cannon that cannon's a big cliff or cathedral cathedral's a big chunk of rock right i mean it's 400 feet of just just solid big rock and and then it sort of moved on to being like smaller and smaller more interesting and it's more about the movement than mm-hmm. it is about the feature yeah. Um, and and you know by the mid '80s, that's when folks were sort of going off into the woods finding these gems. But it's it is fascinating that a lot of the areas around New Hampshire have a pretty long history of climbing, like right. a very long history. Um, even even um, you know, an area uh, like you know Rumney or or Merriam Woods, which is also known as Russell Crags. You know, folks were climbing there back in the '60s. Um, it's just like a lot of these things, there's sort of an ebb and flow of where the focus is. And so recently the focus has very much been on sport climbing and really pushing the grades. So, I mean, it's, it's wild to think that one of the f- handful of 515s in, in the United States is right there at Romney. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that's, uh, that's another question we wanted to talk about the rating scale. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Sure. So, um, there is, yeah, there a there's, there's a bunch of different rating scales. Um, the, the, what, what we primarily use here in the U.S. is what's called the Yosemite Decimal System, or YDS. Mm-hmm. And so that's when somebody says, you know, a 5 point something, 510 or a 515 or a 512. Um, and what that came from was, shockingly enough, Yosemite, when, <laughs> <laughs> thus, thus the name. Um, and, and the thinking was, okay, there's been these sort of grades of, of ascent that, that had been around for a while where, you know, you hear about third class or fourth class or fifth class or sixth class climbing. And so, you know, at, at a basic level, first class is walking up a trail. You're not using your hands. Sure. Second class is, I would argue, an awful lot of White Mountain trails are second class because every now and then you're grabbing rocks, you're using your hands a bit, but you're you're primarily walking, right? But you're but you're scrambling. There's a fair bit of scrambling involved. Third class is when things get more serious, and that's that's real scrambling. So a couple of the trails we've been talking about would fall into that, right? So the hunting Ooh. Huntington Ravine Trail, Flume Slide Trail. Yep. 
there's places where you are really using your hands and it would be a real bad idea if you slipped. Holt? On cardigan? I would think. Yeah, that probably counts. Yeah, Maybe? Sure. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So third class is like when we think about scrambling, but we don't think about, I'm going to get a rope. That's third class. Fourth class right, right. is, and there's not that much fourth class around here, but in a whole lot of like the bigger mountains have fourth class scrambles to get to the top. And those, that's right on the teetering edge where most people who are experienced don't use a rope. But some people who are either not experienced or who are experienced but want to be more cautious, do want a rope. So fourth class is, is sort of that, that teetering point between scrambling and climbing. Gotcha. Fifth class, the basic definition of fifth class climbing is most of us use a rope. And historically, a rope is, is standard. And so the, the Yosemite Decimal System started off with the notion of, okay, so fifth class as a category to say that this is technical rock climbing with a rope, that's just too broad a category to show all the different gradations of difficulty. So let's turn it into a decimal system. So it's 5.0 is sort of the lowest level of what almost everyone would want to rope up with. And then it gets harder, 5.1, 5.2, 5.3, 5.4, on and up. I mean, so when I talked about Whitney Gilman Ridge back in 1929, super technical for its time that's a five seven so um and then at a certain point in time you know they got up to the the hardest that they thought it made sense because the numbers kept getting harder and they got up to 5.9 and then something harder came along and that was still five nine because you can't go above okay 0.9 right on a decimal scale and then they opened the scale up and so then a bunch of things that used to be called five nine actually all of a sudden you realize that no that's actually harder than a five nine that's actually a five ten so they got reclassified as a five ten, okay. and then and then that's an open ended scale and so sometimes you break the higher levels of those the, the harder climbs down into either a three or a four further breakdown area so you could have like a five ten minus so that's easier than what a normal five ten is but harder than a five nine yeah. Or a 510 plus, which is again, you know, harder than a 510, but easier than a 511. Or then they broke that down to even a bigger way of breaking it down is to have A, B, C, and D. So hey, I'm, I'm curious, Russ. Anyway, this, this must cause so much on, drama. <laughs> like, what if you're the first one to sort of break a route? And you say, do they then allow you to say, like, okay, this one's a five eight? But then, like, what if some other people then climb it after you said it's a five eight, and then they come back and say, like, no, 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 that's a five seven? Like, does that does those kind of arguments happen, or does everyone pretty much just know enough to know? by looking at it and feeling it, what the rating number should be. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and it, the, the short answer is it, the way you're describing it is the way it works. So the first ascensionist says what they think it is. Other people climb it, and then the community, whatever that means, like other climbers pretty much, generally either agree, and so... You know, I said this was a 5.8. Other people get on it. Yeah, that feels like it's about 5.8. Um, or they they might downgrade it or upgrade it over time. Okay. And so there's a bunch of routes. You know, Rumney's a great example of a bunch of routes at Rumney, which when they were first put up, they were graded something, and now they're a letter grade harder. I mean, usually it's not a massive difference, right? Usually if you, if you think it's something, other people are going to think it's somewhere roughly in that same realm but when you're talking about cutting edge that's when it you know people 
think it's very important whether this is a 513D or a 514A or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, tagging onto that, how does outdoor translate to indoor roots? So, here's the thing. By definition, this is all subjective. Yeah. And so, often, you've got this sort of consensus grading we're talking about that happens... I'm going to get to your answer, but but give me a second here. <laughs> so so often you've got you've got this um, this situation where in an area because of the standards of that area and the type of climbing that the the people who did a lot of climbing that for, put up a lot of roots there, the climbing feels a certain difficulty and the numbers line up in a certain way, and then you go to another geography, and different people did it. And they have a different mindset. <laughs> and the numbers end up being kind of different. And then you go indoors, and then the numbers might be different there too. So some really interesting examples here. You know, for the most part, the old the areas where climbing is the oldest tend to have harder grades. Like as in a five six at in, in North Conway, or actually almost, you know, North Conway or on Cannon or in, in a lot of these places, or at the Schwangunks in, in upstate New York, feels to many of us, and this is, you know, broadly accepted, is actually harder than if you go to a newer developed area where a 5.6 feels easier. And so there's sometimes, actually, New Hampshire is a fascinating example of this. You know, I mentioned how everything's all crammed in. It's in a very small geography, but you've got very different characters, right? And so, you know, if you look at the grading on like Canon or Cathedral, which sort of evolved together, even though they're on opposite sides of the mountains, they're, they're big rocks that people started climbing on a long time ago. Those are generally considered uh, harder grades. You know, so a five nine there is a pretty serious undertaking for a lot of us. Whereas uh, Rumney developed much later, and many of the climbs get really hard at Rumney. So a five nine there actually feels a lot easier. Mm. Um, Interesting. Or you can go to all sorts of different places, and places you know they feel different. And also, it's the style of climbing which feels different. So it's really hard when anything that's subjective. But usually within an area, like within within Rumney or within, uh, you know, Cathedral, the relative grades are going to feel, like a 5.6 is going to feel easier than a 5.9, yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, Broad, sure. Broadly speaking, those numbers are going to work that way. But, like, if you're thinking, ooh, I could climb 5.9, five, five, whatever number you, you decide, at this one rock climbing gym in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. does that mean that I can climb 5.9 on Cannon? Yeah. Probably not. You know, maybe not, maybe. Um, you know, our mindset at, at our gym, uh, in, you know, the North Country Climbing Center, yeah. um, is that we try, we, a little bit of a plug there, um, we try really hard to make our grades and we do a sort of a community grading there that it'll feel the same or not the same, but it'll be, feel the same difficulty levels as at Rumney. That's what mm. we pin things to. So mm. again, if we, if it says five, nine at our gym, hopefully it feels about as hard to most people as a 5.9 at Rumney would feel. Gotcha. Um, That's great. Different gyms have different mindsets. You know, there's some gyms in a lot of 
populated areas where you know with where the there's an idea that great inflation makes people feel better and <laughs> and so in some oh, no. yeah and so in some places you know i uh, i remember showing up in you know in some places you wouldn't necessarily expect so i show up in like boulder colorado where they've got for for a small city they've got like five big rock climbing gyms or something yeah and you go in and it's like whoa the number that I'm climbing in this gym is so amazing. Did I just get really strong? And then, and then I go out and oh you go to, and, and what's, what's interesting actually about Boulder is that in a very, again, a pretty small area, you've got some older climbing and newer climbing and you go to some place, you go to like El Dorado Canyon, which is another one of these areas that's famous for having grades that feel really hard. So I'm yeah. at, I'm at, at a gym in Boulder and I'm feeling like I'm king of the world and then I drive 20 minutes and I'm feeling like whoa this this feels really hard <laughs> so anyway that's really interesting yeah so grades grades are interesting um, it's all subjective there's a lot of talk these days also about how because everything is subjective and everything has so much to do with the physiological differences between people mm -hmm. that any idea that we have that we try to claim that a grade has any objective yeah. value is is really silly right so right. if you're taller it's going to feel different whether it's easier or harder is is yeah is going to depend on what the movement is some often it's easier if you're taller because you can reach reach up to a hold that a shorter person can't reach to. Yeah. But right. sometimes there's really scrunchy roots where it helps to be short. And sometimes it helps to have really big fingers and sometimes it helps to have really small fingers. So, gotcha. you know, these grades are there. I think the healthy thing to do is to use it as a guideline and use it as sort of a yardstick. And It's a guideline. Yeah. Well, in, in the climbing gym, how often do you have to switch up the roots? Is that like a once a quarter thing or do you feel like you have to do that once a month or or... Or do you just like tell people like, hey, you know, don't use this wall here today because you've used it three or four times, but use that other section or how, how does that work? Uh, so it's it's a rotating thing. Okay. So pretty much every week um, what what we do is we have uh, root setters that you, you take down a certain number of roots and then you, you, you put new ones up each week. Okay. And so in our gym, what we try to do, and this doesn't always happen, but we try to make it so that any one route doesn't stay up longer than about three months, give or take. Okay. Now that often we, we often don't, don't live up to that because our root setters get busy with other things, with guiding, with whatever. We're sort of in a unique position like that. We're a small gym, but our, our target, and I think this is pretty similar to the targets of an awful lot of gyms, is to make it so that anyone who's climbing there regularly, you know, you, you kind of want to balance it where you don't want even if you did have an unlimited number of root setters, you wouldn't want to like take down a root after a week, right? Because even if someone comes in, it's like you're not going to get bored of a root that quickly. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's working a root to try to figure it out and try to get it done, they're going to need some time. So in a, in a perfect world, I think a few months is actually a really good length of time for any one root to stay up. Yeah. But every week, there's going to be new roots, yeah. right? Because you're, you're sort of rotating around the whole gym and you're changing the boulder problems as well as the full height roots and stuff so right. yeah. and then when you've been out and there trying to mix it up with different styles and ideally you have different setters who have different sort of climbing styles and personalities and some short people and some tall people and some people that like to be really technical and some people that like to do big power moves and yeah, yeah right. all that stuff Wow. Now, when you when you're out <laughs> in the you know you're on these climbing routes outside of the gym. 
have you had any like like you described that that lead climbing fall before on like you could you could fall like 15 feet have you had that happen to you or have you been around people where because you sort of have to bat a thousand when you're climbing like you can't you no you don't no you don't <laughs> well you actually you don't with a rope but like, I mean unless I mean unless unless you're Alex Honnold and you're yeah, you're free climbing yeah, you're, right. you're free soloing yeah. um, and so um, the the especially with sport climbing where you know there's bolts these bolts are rated at you know more than 20 kilonewtons and kilonewton is something like 235 pounds of force so imagine like you know that's that's really strong, right? Um, and so, in order to climb something that's really hard, you know, there's some level that for for any one of us is our limit, right? No matter how good you are. One of the things that's so cool about climbing is no matter no matter how hard you climb, there's something harder to climb. Even the best climbers in the world have a project that they're working on that's that's harder than they can do today and maybe tomorrow they'll get it done yeah but you only find where that limit is by basically falling off um mm. and so i mean earlier today <laughs> at rumney i i fell off the rock a few times and does it freak you out as much as it did the first time no no it doesn't <laughs> and and also i mean the thing the one of the things that's so uh <laughs> engaging about climbing is that we have, uh, you know, I talked, I talked earlier about how there's some places that have more variables and some places that have less, you know, some types of climbing that have fewer variables, right? So, yeah. like, indoor at a climbing gym, there's, there's a very limited number of variables. Outside, there's, there's more. Um, when you are sport climbing, you still have a pretty limited number of variables. And generally, the folks that are putting the bolts in have been very thoughtful about trying to make sure that um, they place bolts right at the places that people are most likely to fall. And so when you're doing the hardest move, you are less likely to fall far, you know, on, you know, relative to the, the difficulty of the, the, the rest of the climb. You know, if you're on a climb that is hard for you, whatever that is, you're likely to be close to a bolt mm -hmm. on a sport climb. So you're not going to fall a long way. Yeah. However, at traditional climbing areas where you're placing your own gear and, and there may not be any bolts in the rock. Uh, in those situations, then you've got you've got an, another variable there, which is the quality of the gear that you can place, the quality of the rock, and also um, w how dangerous the fall could be. And one of those. Oh no. <laughs> Xylo's attacking we, for the we listeners. Had a, we had a we had a we had a cat attack. Yeah. Um, and so and so there's some places where yeah, a fall on certain traditional routes on places like you know again, Cannon, Whitehorse, Cathedral, to name a few, that could be really dangerous. Um, and there might not be good protection for a, for some distance there, even on something that's that's pretty challenging, and especially you know if you're climbing near your own limit. So you can you you can really assess you know talking about this idea of falling. It's not like a fall is a fall is a fall. There's some falls that are fine, especially if you're on an overhanging roof. If you're climbing up something that's steep and overhanging, and you fall, you're just going to drop into space. Yep. If you're climbing right above a big ledge and you fall, you might smack on a ledge, which could be really bad, you know. Yeah, anyway, really bad. There's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot, uh, a lot to it. And yeah, 
Um, and there's a wide range between what's our perception of, you know, our fear and, and our perception of danger versus actual danger. Are, there's often a big delta there, right? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that, that we often talk about with climbing is that, um, you know, folks that are new to climbing often have a much higher perception of, of danger than actually exists, than the risk that's actually there. That's fair. Um, now, on the flip side, there's some folks who get so comfortable with it that their perception is actually lower than what the actual risk is. Hockey? Uh, yeah, exactly. Or complacent yep. or, or whatever. Yep. And that being thoughtful at whatever level you're at and being able to analyze the risk is a really important thing. And actually, this is one of the, the fascinating things about a lot of Ty Gagne's writing about hiking and about, you know, manager. risk management in the hiking context is very similar, I think. You know, a lot of those same principles, just as, you know, he does risk management for first responders and stuff. That's yeah. his, like, job. Um, and then he translates that to risk management in, in a mountain environment for primarily for hikers, for a lot of the stuff he's been writing about. You can directly translate that same sort of framework to risk analysis and risk management in uh, technical climbing scenarios. Sure. So. Yeah, no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I never thought of that. Oh, and by the so way, just 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 one little one little like wording thing that that's uh, that gets sort of under the skin of a lot of climbers is that you know, the term free solo refers to climbing without a rope. So you watch the movie Alex Honnold free soloing. That's mm -hmm. climbing without a rope. Um, free climbing means something fairly different because free climbing almost everything that that uh, that most climbers do is actually free climbing. That is when you are ascending up the rock using just your hands and your feet on the rock. And the gear that you place is protecting in case you fall. That's in, in so free climbing, the the other type of climbing that's not free climbing is aid climbing, where you actually are are basically pulling on or stepping on gear mm -hmm. that you've placed in the rock. And so okay. um yeah, gotcha. so that's one of those things to th just think about. It's like uh, often people say, "Oh, did you free climb up then?" It's like, "Well, yeah, every everything that we do is free climbing." But <laughs> gotcha. But but that's different from free soloing, mm -hmm. which is if you free solo up something that does mean you have gone up usually something big uh, with big, a chalk bag. Hey, with, hey without without a rope. <laughs> yeah. Um so that's that's different. And then soloing, you know, often people use the term solo to primarily mean free soloing, but there is rope soloing. Sure. So there are times that people go and they either lead solo or they top rope solo where you can go and set up a rope and have a mechanism that is you know belaying yourself. Yep. And that that can be soloing, but that's very different than what what you know Honold is talking about doing, right? Sure, sure. Because that's actually you know protected still. So yeah, Look, climbing's yeah. come a long way because it's even it's in the Olympics, I think, coming up. Um, so I, I don't know if it's going to be yeah. in the twenty twenty eight Olympics, but I think competitive climbing is an Olympic sport in the next the next Olympics. Yeah, yeah, no, and they've they've evolved that a little bit because there's three disciplines in um, in the Olympics. There's uh, bouldering so we, we already talked about that that's short you know, you're not you, there's no rope mm -hmm. it's not super tall usually it's a few moves that are really baffling <laughs> and and incredibly gymnastic and hard right um so that there's bouldering there's sport climbing and again in the in the 
um, Olympic setting and in most competition climbing, almost all modern competition climbing is on fake walls. You know, it's, it's indoor climbing, indoors or outdoors, but it's on fake walls with holds and so forth, not on rock. Um, it's wild to learn about back in like the, the 70s and the 80s, they actually did have competitions that were outdoor competitions on real rock which is kind of wild to think about but anyway that's that's uh that's neither here nor there and then the third discipline which is you know totally different than the other two is speed climbing and speed climbing is where there is the exact same set of holds in exactly the same order going the exact same distance on a wall that's exactly the same angle mm. everywhere like there is one speed climbing setup and it's how fast you can get up it. And it's wild, and it's incredibly athletic, and it's fun to watch, and it takes like seven seconds for these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's not easy. I mean, so if, you, if you've watched, you know, normal athletes, you know, going and doing it, it's not, it's not an easy route, mm-hmm. but it's, it's one route. And they learn every move and memorize it and have this just explosive power to be able to do whatever it is, six, seven, eight seconds of just like, it looks like they're literally running up the wall. Yeah. And what they did in the, the first Olympics that it was in, the last, last time around, was they did a combination where you had to, it was sort of a combined event, kind of like, you know, they've got um, the Nordic combined or something like that, where you, you take different sports and then you add up all the points to get, mm-hmm. a, to get one winner. And what's fascinating about this is that you know, climbing has become such a um, specialized, each each different aspect of climbing has become so specialized that you had the folks that are really good boulderers or really good sport climbers or really good speed climbers. Now, what's fascinating is that the boulderers and the sport climbers, often there's a lot of overlap there. Mm-hmm. So, you can have the folks that do really well at, at sport climbing, like are the best in the world. And that are per- they, they're probably really good boulderers and vice versa. They're prob- there's an awful lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. But speed climbing is a totally different thing. Yeah. And so the people who are really like the very best speed climbers in the world generally are not in the top echelon of sport or boulderers. Mm-hmm. And the folks that are sport climbers or boulderers haven't spent much time honing their speed climbing skills. So depending on how you look at it, it's either kind of weird to mix mm-hmm. up these three things or it's actually really cool because you had these folks who are just amazing athletes focusing having to focus a lot of effort on something that they had never been focusing on before yeah and so it was really cool to see that now they've they've decided that that kind of muddied the water a little bit and so they're i think unless uh, unless they've changed something my what i remember reading was that they're now going to actually have three separate disciplines mm. And, you know, there's, you know, in the same way that there's a, a separate discipline for, or a, a separate competition for, uh, you know, breaststroke versus, um, yeah. you know, freestyle or yep. whatever, right? There's, there's going to be like a sport climbing competition, a bouldering competition and, uh, and a speed climbing competition. And, you know, if, if folks make, make the grade and make the team, they can probably compete in two of the three or even all three of the three, but they're going to, they're, they're competing for separate medals. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it is wild that it's actually entered the mainstream that way. It's fantastic. No, it's coming. It's come a huge, well, and back when I built the gym, so I built the gym in 2014. So we're, we're almost exactly nine years old. Um, and at that time, like there was one article that came out that they'd, 
done some analysis of data showing that at the time a thousand people a day were trying were trying out climbing for the first time at a gym in North America. So on mm-hmm. any given day, a thousand people were trying climbing for the first time. Two thousand nine. Uh, 2014. Oh, sorry. Nine years ago. So, um, and so it's, it's pretty wild to think, you know, that's, there's not many sports that are growing that fast that on any given day, a thousand new people are trying it here. That's a current number from, from nine years ago. Okay. Yeah. So it's going to be different now. So it's different now. Yeah. I I doubt you can't keep that speed, that acceleration forever and ever. Yeah. So, Um, okay. So. Just so everybody knows, Rusty owns the North Country Climbing Gym, which is in Littleton, New Hampshire. So, um, technically, we're in Lisbon, but we're right on the Littleton-Lisbon line. So, okay. Yeah. But Fair anyway, enough. close enough to Littleton. Yeah. Easy to find. Um, so, make your pitch to the listeners. Most of the listeners here, I think, are predominantly hikers. So, why don't you just make your pitch to say, you should give climbing a try. I mean, this is fascinating. I've been hesitant to try climbing myself. But for different reasons, you know, everybody has their reasons. But uh, what what would you say to get somebody to give it a shot? Um, so I'd say a couple of things. I mean, one one thing I would say is that um, there aren't that many activities. So one thing that's great about indoor climbing is you can have three generations of a family or of people mm-hmm. together in the same place, pushing themselves and having fun at the level that is challenging for them, right? You can have... Kids doing kids stuff, middle-aged people doing middle-aged people stuff, and and um, folks who are more elderly, you know, climbing things that are still challenging and fun for them, and and you can do that together. And that's, and that's I've really I've cool. pondered this and been like, you know, what other activities are there that you can actually get together and do that? Because what's great is that you're if you're in a in a climbing gym, and even at a sport climbing area like like Rumney, yeah. you can have a five two route right next to a five thirteen route. Right, and so you can have like the very strongest thing imaginable next to something which six-year-olds are having a blast cruising on. Right, yeah. um, so that's that's one piece to it. And as I mentioned before, this isn't—I don't really see climbing as being a thrill-seeking type thing. I don't think most climbers do. I think they see it as being a uh, an analysis of movement and. And then you do have these elements of getting up to these amazing places. So you can come at it from a couple of different directions. A lot of modern climbers, I think, come at it from the movement standpoint mm-hmm. of really thinking, wow, I, I, I want to do these really cool gymnastic moves, move, make my body do these things and get up something where the first time you try it, you're like, I can't even hold on. Like, I don't even know, like, how is this even possible? And then you try it so again, true. and then you try it again, and they're like, gets, oh, wait, I can hold on better. now. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you can make the move, and then before you know it, you've done something that you're like, wow, that was amazing. How did I, and, and then you can keep moving forward with that. There's always something harder to do. Yep. You can also come at it from the, the side, which I think I sort of came at it from, which is, this is a, a mechanism that helps you get up to amazing places. So, like, yeah. earlier we were talking about how, you know, when I'm running the ridge, I like to go and hop out on that little spire. Just being out on that spire, it's just, it's, that is just a great sensation to be in this beautiful place. Or if you yeah. look up at the eaglet, I, sure. think, I think the summit of the eaglet is truly the coolest spot in New Hampshire. What, now, what's the rating on that from, five, the, seven. from the highway side? Five, okay. se- five seven. It's, right. it's a moderate climb. It's a moderate, it's a, it's a great adventure climb. And it, yeah. it uses a number, like the standard way up it uses 
skills, like different sets of skills. I mean, you have to do some face climbing. You have to climb a crack. There's a chimney nice. that you've got to sort of wriggle up. There's this, you know, the, the actual spire itself. You're like right up on top of this, this Just tower. for listeners, I mean, the eaglet is just below the watcher. So, a lot of, yeah. a lot of hikers know where the watcher is. The eaglet's that spire you, right there. You've got to walk around the eaglet to get to the watcher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We um, did spot some. And so uh, I was up on top of the watcher couple of weeks ago and we did spot some anchors like not on the eaglet but like on that top section on you know where you climb up above the watcher too so it looks like they do some climbing on that that face past the eaglet too yeah that's called the long wall okay <laughs> it looks harder, right? there's 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 a couple of, i mean there's lots of different climbing up there yeah. um there's there's a bunch of climbs so you, you the more you look around in franconia notch at those cliffs the more you'll see remnants of people yes so <laughs> Folks, I, think I, I mean like as in if i mean that not in the terms of remnants of people i mean like as in bolts or anchors or yeah. things like that it's like oh there people have been here people have climbed this for a very long time mm-hmm. and there's lots of different routes up there and like the eaglet the standard way up it is five seven another way up it is one of the very best 511s in i think one of the best 511s in new hampshire and it oh. goes when you're looking at it the right side, the sort of steep, the biggest oh, side. Yeah. Yep. It goes right up that overhang and then right along the the, the edge of it, sort of right, right up the, that. So. Fascinating. Um, so, yeah, you can, uh, I guess I would say um, climbing is, is a way to get to really cool places. Mm-hmm. And it also is a way to have really cool movement, have fun with people. It's a very social activity. There's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, it's awesome. So the one thing which I have to say, most most folks, there's many people out there who say, oh, I would never do that because I'm afraid of heights. And and my response to that is, you know, there's a lot of things that we're afraid of until we sort of face it and understand it. And it's like, it's one thing to have a rational fear of heights where it's like, I'm not going to stand really close to an edge that I might fall off of or slip off of or something like that. Yeah. That, that is rational. There's there's a reason to not do that. But if you're attached to a rope, if you know that the anchor is solid, your belayer is good, then there is not a rational reason to be concerned about heights for the sake of heights yeah. in that sense. And that um, what what many people find is that there's this you know psychological uh, phenomenon called um, systematic desensitization, yeah. which basically it's the same way that people deal with any irrational phobia, which is the more you get exposed to it in small increments, the less it affects you. Mm. And so, you know, in this, it, it's if you, uh, it's kind of like the three, the three zones. There's the comfort zone, the growth zone, and the panic zone. If you go into the panic zone, you're you're not going to actually learn anything or 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 become a different person, right? You're going to freak out, and you're not going to want to do whatever it is you're doing. If you stay in the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You're not going to change at all. You're not going to evolve. But if you push yourself into that growth zone, and this is true with hiking, this is true with anything, right? If you're in that growth zone and you're doing something that is just not comfortable, but it's not at the total freakout level yet, yeah. that's when you really grow. And that's sure. when when things happen that are just great. So do you so. offer um, like you know one-on-one training, guiding, or what? what's... All of the above. Okay. All of the above, yeah. That's so awesome. So we do have... Uh, classes whether you're talking belay classes or any of those indoors. sorts of things that are indoors outdoors. we also do outdoor guiding yeah again whether it's for families whether it's for individuals who want to do some kind of a big adventure like going up the eaglet or going up on cannon yeah um or uh you know smaller stuff going to echo crag which is a great 
great little spot yeah. um, right at the top of Franconia Notch with easy access and really solid rock and so forth. So, so. we're running long at time. <laughs> We've but gone really long, but this no, has been, I hope you guys have been no, enjoying this, is, this. This is great, but I do want to just sort of go towards the negative. Okay, oh. so what Uh-oh. are the mistakes that newbies make? What are some of the more common problems? Oh, man. Um, so there are, so one of the things that actually the, 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 the downside of climbing gyms mm-hmm. has been, I think that folks have gotten very strong and very proficient at the movement of climbing without building up the skill set of all of those other variables, yep. uh, related to rope work, rope handling, gear management, anchor management, any of that kind of stuff. And so, whereas um, in the past when, you know, folks historically, you know, they were mostly just climbing outside and they were being mentored by by people with more experience, they would begin off on very, very easy climbs outside and they would also be learning all the rope work and all the gear skills and all of that. And it would sort of be this, you know, Again, if we want to use good old dayism, we'd, we'd sort of say like, you know, there's this gentle progression and, and you are mentored into it so that you couldn't make the worst, worst mistakes. Correct, yeah. um, now, that wasn't always true, of course, but, but that's at least, you know, one, one way that, that some folks went through that. Whereas now it's so easy to get, I shouldn't say easy, but it's, it's the barrier to getting strong has mm-hmm. gone away because there's so many climbing gyms around. And so folks can have never touched rock maybe never even like tied into a rope and they are really strong climbers right you know and if if your entire experience is you know clipping into an auto belay at a gym or bouldering at a gym and then you go outside and you see the grades and you're like oh well if this is only a five nine what trouble could i get into yeah and there's a lot of other skills there and so So it really sounds like you need a mentor for this type of activity yeah, I mean that's one that's one way to do it. I mean, there's lots of ways of of getting there. Um, yeah, part, partly because it's my business, but I I would argue that you can actually really supercharge your learning by by hiring a guide and working with a guide to like hone in certain skills so that because there's there's that problem that often you don't know what you don't know. Sure, sure. Right. I mean, there's some of the the obvious stuff, but. Um, if there's, there's podcasts about like accidents in North American mountaineering and all this yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was just listening to one earlier today where, you know, someone got themselves into really big trouble, mostly because, you know, they, they started going down a, a path that made sense to them without having the perspective of thinking it through and, or really knowing what the best practices were or anything. Yeah. And so simply, you know, either mentoring, being with a group of folks, mm-hmm. hiring a guide, all sorts of things like that really can can supercharge and make make uh, make it possible to be, have a, a long and really entertaining uh, time and safe. climbing and safe. <laughs> all right. Well, we will yeah, make sure stuff. that we uh, put all of the details about North Country climbing and all your services, Rusty. And then me and Stomp got to get down there and or up there. Um, Hell yeah! Uh, Come on uh, in once or twice. Yeah, yeah. I got to check. It's a great it out. place. I think I, I think I was able to do a five nine. 
Sweet. Awesome. So that means I can zip right up the eaglet, right? Oh, you, we, could, we could get you up the eaglet, no problem. You, you would love it. I would do that. Yeah, and it's funny. You talked about how you got, you know, I've done the same thing. Like, I was into road cycling for a while. Then I got into triathlons. I've always been into running. And I've sort of fallen back on hiking as my thing. But I'm sort of at that point where I think I need a new thing. So maybe it'll be climbing. Especially with the winter coming. Give it a try. Yeah. Give it a try. And I mean, and and then there's ice climbing. We we touched on that a little bit, but that is just a totally different. Like the movement across ice is a really cool thing. I bet uh, we should definitely have you come back in because we're just we'll scratching the surface. That. Cool. We, we had other questions, but yeah, we'll <laughs> but skip, have y- yammered we'll on skip. long enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll skip the search and rescue for this time. And uh, do you have? Do you just want to plug your website before you go? It's real simple. All right, northcountryclimbing.com. There you go. And you're on Instagram if you want to reveal that? North Country Climbing. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the website. And stop. not only uh, on the website, it reminded me, not only is it sober October, but it's also Rocktober. So that's a good time to get into the gym it and get Rocktober. climbing. There you yeah. go. Yeah. All right. That's super cool. Well, any uh, final thoughts? No, this was awesome. I could listen to you talk all day, yeah. Rusty, but we, we, uh, really we only have so it, much uh, bandwidth that we paid for for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks thanks so much for having me on guys this has been a blast good, I, good. I, I love it alright until next time thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify Podbean YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts if you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.